Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. Notes and Queries, Number 135, May 29, 1852. By Various. Parchment. While Le Parcheminier de Lincoln, Pour un design de parchment, 3S. Paper and Ink. Five Cares de Papier, 3S, 4D, Pour Anker, 4D. Sealing Wax. Un Livre de Serre Vermel, 10D. Chessboard. Jehan Perrault, Que Porta au Roy, One Instrument Appel LS Chequier, Chuyel Avoid Fate, Le Roy d'Angleterre Avoid Don au Roy, Et li Envoyet Par Letit Jean, Pour Don Ali Fate, 20 Nobles equals 6L, 13S, 4D. Organs. Master Jehan, El Organier, Pour a Parala Les Orgies du Roy, Pour One Umca Suffle Par Three Jours, 18D. N.C. Poor Tout, 58s. Harp. Le Roy de Ministeriux, Poor an Harp Akati du Commandment du Roy, 13s. 4d. Clock. Le Roy de Ministeriux, Sir La Fakin de Elaloge, Horloge, Chuyel Fate Poor Le Roy, 17 Nobles, Valent 113s. 4d. Leather Bottles. Poor Two Boutils de Queer Akatis à Londres Poor Monsignor Philippe. 9s. 8d. Knives. Pour one pair de custios pour le roi 2s. Gloves. Pour four two pairs de gans 12d. Shoes. Pour twelve pairs de solers, souliers, pour le roi 7s. Carpenter's bill for windows of king's prison in the tower. Denis le Lombard, de Londres, Charpentier, pour la facon de four fenesters pour la chamber du roi and la tour de Londres. Say Asavoir, pour le bois de four chassis, 3s, 2d, item, pour clue, 2s, 2d, item, pour un pot de queer, 5d, item, pour six livres et demi de turbentine, 4s, 4d, item, pour oil, 3d, item, pour seven ons et demi de toile, 9s, 4d, item, pour tout la facon de dix fenesters, 10s, pour tout, 29s, 8d, Saddle. Go to fra le cellier. Pour un sel doré pour le roi. Estoff de saint les et de tout le hernois for l. Minstrels. Le roi de menestrokes pour don fate ali par le roi pour queerer ses necessites. Forescus equals 13s. 4d. Les ministeriaux du roi d'Angleterre. Du prince de Gales et du duc de Lancaster. Coferent mestier devant le roi. 40 nobles. Valent 13l. 6s. 8d. Un ministro cajua dun chien et dun singe devant le roi caloit aus champ si jure. 3s. 4d. Lions in the tower. Le garde de lions du roi d'Angleterre. Pour don ali fate par le roi ca ala viwar lestis lions. 3 nobles equals 20s. Visit to Queen Philippa. Un batelier de Londres camina le roi et ocandesies gens d'empres le pont de Londres jusques à Westmontier, Devers la roi d'Angleterre, que le roi à la viewar, et y suppa, et le remina led at batelier. Pour si, three nobles equals twenty s. Dinner with Edward three. Les bataliers commenerent, and two barges, le roi et ses gens à Westmonster, si jure chuyel disna avec le roi d'Angleterre. 
66s. 8d. A row on the river Thames. Plusieurs battalions de Londres commenterent le roi espader à ride ride, redrif alias Rutherhide, ETA lures, par la rivière de Tamis, pour don fate à yolks, eight nobles, valent fifty three s. 3d. The king's great ship. Les alvires de la grand nef du roi d'Angleterre, que le roi à la vivoire en venant d'espader de champs, pour don à yolks fate, thirty three s. 4d. A climbing feat on Dover Heights. Un homme de Duvra, appeal le ramper, que rampe devant le roi contremont la roche devant l'hermitage de Duvra, pour Don, and C. Five nobles equals 33s. 4d. Presence. At Dover on July 6, 1360, John dined at the castle with the Black Prince, when an esquire of the King of England brought to the King of France le proper goblet à quoi let it roi d'Angleterre buvet. K.I.L. le envoyait en Don, and the French king sent Edward as a present le propre hennep à quoi il buvait, que fou Monseigneur St. Lois. And be this hennep was a famous drinking cup which had belonged to St. Lewis. Newgate Prisoners. Pour almost en fait à Yolks, 66s. 8d. Pembroke Palace. Un varlet cagard à l'hostel Madame de Panabroc, Marie de St. Paul, Countess of Pembroke, à Londres. O le roi fils petit jour. Two nobles equals thirteen s. For d. Horse dealing. Light was, marchant de chevaux, pour one coursier quitte de lit pour le roi. Sixty nobles equals twenty l. Cockfighting. Choc de la saucerie, pour one cock a quitte du commandment mons. Philippe affaire juste two s. Eight d. W. M. R. E. Return. Among the royal misses in the British Museum is Goyart de Moulin's translation of Pet, Comestus Historia Scholastica, which was found in the tent of John at the Battle of Poitiers. Vide Wartenzing. Poetry, Volume 1, page 90. Way of indicating time in music. The following rough mixture of notes and queries may serve to excite attention to the subject. The merest beginner is aware that the letter C, with a vertical line drawn through it, denotes common time in which he will take the C for the first letter of common. The symbols of old music are four, the circle, the semicircle, and the two with vertical lines drawn through them. After these were written two or three, according as the time was double or triple. And instead of a bar drawn through the circle or semicircle, a central point was sometimes inserted. All these are true facts, whether connected or unconnected, and whether any implication conveyed in any way of stating them be true or false. The C, with a line through it, certainly did not distinguish common time from triple. Alst, in his Encyclopedia, 1649, says that it means the beginning of the music, without any reference to time. Solomon de Kaus, known as having had the steam engine claimed for him, but who certainly wrote on music in 1615, found the circles, and C, so variously used by different writers, that he abandons all attempt at description or reconciliation. May I suggest an origin for the cross C? In the oldest church music, it often happens that the lines are made to begin with a vertical line impaling two lozenges, with a third lozenge between them, but on one side. It is as if in the three of diamonds the middle lozenge were removed a little to the left, the upper and lower ones sliding on a vertical line until they nearly touch the removed middle one. Now if this figure were imitated current calamo, as in rapid writing, 
it would certainly become an angle crossed by a vertical line, which angle would perhaps be rounded, thus giving the cross semicircle. Has this derivation been suggested? Or can any one suggest a better? But it will be said, whence comes the full circle? It is possible that there may have happened in this case what has happened in others, namely, that a symbol invented, and firmly established, before the partial disuse of Latin, may have been extended in different ways by the vernacular writers of different countries. This has happened in the case of the words million, billion, trillion, and c. The first, and the root of all, was established early, and while no vernacular works existed, and it has only one meaning. The others, certainly introduced at a later time, mean different things in different countries. May it not have been that the variety of usage which Dekaus notes, may have arisen from different writers, ignorant of each other, choosing each his own mode of deriving other symbols from the cross semicircle, obtained as suggested by me? I am fully aware of the risk of such suggestions, but they have often led to something better. Hmm. Minor Notes A smart saying of Baxter. In his aggravations of vain babbling, speaking of gossips, Baxter says, If I had one to send to school that were sick of the talking evil, the more buslo kindy, I would give, as I Socrates required, a double pay to the schoolmaster willingly, one part for teaching him to hold his tongue, and the other half for teaching him to speak. I should think many such men and women half cured if they were half as weary of speaking as I am of hearing them. He that lets such twattling swallows build in his chimney may look to have his pottage savor of their dung. B.B. Latin Hexameters on the Bible The verses given under this title by Lord Braybrook, in Volume 5, page 414, remind me of a similar method which I adopted, when at school, in order to impress upon my memory the names of the Jewish months. The lines run thus. Lord Braybrook Nisan Abib, Yarzif, Sivan, Tammuz, Ab Elul. Tisri, Marchesan, Chislu, the Beth, Sebet, Adar. The first verse commences with the first month of the ecclesiastical year, the second with the first month of the civil year. A. W. Ancient Connection of Cornwall and Phoenicia. The effort to trace the ancient connection of countries by the relics of their different customs would be amusing if not useful. The fragment of the voyage of Hamilcar the Carthaginian confirms the trade of the Phoenicians with Cornwall for tin. The Roman writers still extant confirm it. The traffic was carried on by way of Gades or Cadiz, the Carthaginians being the carriers for the Phoenicians. In Andalusia to this day, middle-aged and old men are addressed Tio, or Uncle, as Tio Gorge. Uncle George. This custom prevails in Cornwall also, and only there besides. Is not that a trace of the old intercourse? Again, cloud cream, known only in the Duchy of Cornwall, which once extended as far as the river Yexi in Devon, is only found besides in Syria and near modern Tyre, whence the same tin trade was carried on. These are curious coincidences. Many of the old Cornish words are evidently of Spanish origin, as carried, caridad, charity or benevolence, iglas or igles, a church, iglesia or iglesia, and many others, which seem to bear a relation to the same intercourse. The notice respecting the word cot or coat, termination of proper names in a particular district in Cornwall, already mentioned in these pages, supposed to be Saxon from the idea that its use was confined to one district, which I have shown to be a mistake, may be from the Cornish word icot. Below, in place of the Saxon coat or cot. Cottage. 
Thus, Gorakot is probably from Gora or Gora, and Ikot I. Down below. Trelakot from Trey. A town. And Ikot. Below. The I was often. Prefixed for sound's sake, as Lavalu for Avalu. An apple. Kedhin Lavalu. An apple tree. Kalakot from Kala or Kala. Straw. An Ikot. The introduction of the vowel a for I might be a corruption in spelling after the sound. This is only surmise, but it has an appearance of probability. Cyrus Redding. Cyrus Redding. Portrait of John Rogers, the proto-martyr. Should you think the following minor note interesting to your correspondent KT, perhaps you will find a corner for it in your miscellany. KT. Living some time ago on the picturesque coast of Dorsetshire, I had the good fortune to have for a neighbor a lady of cultivated taste and literary acquirements. Among other specimens of antiquity and art to which she drew my attention was a portrait, in oil, of John Rogers. It was of the size called Kit Kat, and was well painted. This portrait she held in great veneration and esteem, declaring herself to be, if my memory does not deceive me, a descendant of this champion of Christianity, whose name stands on the muster roll of the Noble Army of Martyrs. In case K.T. should wish to push his inquiries in this quarter, I enclose you the name and address of the lady above alluded to. K.T. M. W. B. Braligan, or the Deepnosophists. Edward Keneally, E.S.Q., reprinted under the above sonorous title, London, E. Chitton, 1845, some amusing contributions of his to Fraser and other magazines. At pages 94 and 97. He gives us, however, the Uxer non est descenda and the Uxer est descenda of the celebrated Walter Haddon, and that too without the slightest intimation that he himself was not their author. It is not, I think, fair for any man thus to shine in borrowed plumes, or at least transcribe verbatim, and without acknowledgment, from a writer so little known and old-fashioned as Haddon. Let me therefore give the reference, for the benefit of the curious, d. Gualteri Hadoni Poemata, pages 70-3. Londini, 1567-42. R.T. R.T. Stilts used by the Irish. We have all heard of the use of stilts by the shepherds of the Landis, but I have met with only one passage which speaks of their use in Ireland. I have crossed rivers, both in Scotland and in Ireland, on stilts, when the water was not deep, and have seen them kept instead of a ferryboat when there was no bridge, but do not think they are in common use at the present day. The passage in question is quoted in Ledwich's Antiquities, page 300. I had almost forgotten to notice a very remarkable particular recorded by Strata, Strata, Belgium, 1. 8. Page 404. Borlase's Reduction, 132. He tells us that Sir W.M. Pelham, who had been Lord Justice of Ireland, led into the low countries in 1586-1400 wild Irish, clad only below the navel, and mounted on stilts, which they used in passing rivers, they were armed with bows and arrows. Having never met with this use of stilts among any other people, it seemed a matter of curiosity to notice it here. Irianac. Irianac. Queries. Etymology of the word. Devil. What is the etymology of the word devil? This may appear an unnecessary question, since we have a regular chain of edema, delta iota beta omicron lambda omicron, diabolus, diavolo, devil. 
but it is the first of this chain that puzzles me. I am aware that it is considered a translation of, and is derived usually from delta iota alpha beta lambda lambda epsilon iota nu, columnar, but means adversarious, consequently the rendering would not be accurate. As the word in classical writers always means a false accuser, and never a supernatural agent of evil, I doubt the correctness of the usual derivations in the case of ecclesiastical usage, and am inclined to consider it one of the oriental words, in a Hellenistic dress, with which the Septuagint and Greek Testament are replete. Mr. Barrow, in Lavengro, instances as a reason for believing that divine and devilish were originally the same words, the similarity of the gypsy word underbell, God, and our word devil. Struck with this remark, on consideration of the subject, I perceived that there were several other coincidences of the same kind, as follows. The Greek delta from Eomeganu means either a good or bad spirit of superhuman power. The Zen word Afridi, blessed, corresponds to the Arabic Afrit, a rebellious angel, the Latin Divus, a god, and of course delta Iodomicron, with all its variations, belongs to the same family as the Persian Div, a wizard or demon, while the Jean or Jan of the Arabian Nights answer to the forms Zan, Zena, Zeus, Janus, Jana or Diana, all words denoting deified power, and employed by the inhabitants of Greece and Umbria. Delta Iod Beta Omicron Lambda Omicron. Delta Iod Alpha Beta Lambda Lambda Epsilon Iotanu. Delta Alpha Mi Omega Nu. Delta Iod Omicron. These singular resemblances may prove that fetish worship was more widely spread than is generally believed, and I think justify my doubts as to the etymology of the word in question. Richard F. Littledale. Richard F. Littledale. Dublin. Forged Papal Seal. An old seal was discovered some years ago by accident in the ruins of an abbey in the south of Ireland, of which the followings is a description. The workmanship is rude, the material a species of bronze. The impression consists of a circle of raised spots. On either side are two venerable human faces, both bearded. There is a rude cross between them. Above them are the letters. S-P-A-S-P. These are supposed to stand for S.T. Paul and S.T. Peter. It is said that this seal was used for the purpose of affixing an impression to an instrument which pretended to be a papal bull. In fact, that it was used for forging Pope's bulls. One of the objects of such forgeries, if they really occurred, would be to grant dispensations for marriages on account of consanguinity. Some noble families in Ireland had very ancient papal dispensations of this nature. It would often be convenient that extraordinary dispatch should be used in obtaining a dispensation. Can any of your correspondents compare the seals on those dispensations with the above, or throw any light on the practice of dispensing with the ecclesiastical law against consanguineous marriages? H. F. H. Wexford. A passage in. All's well that ends well. Will Mr. Singer favor me with the information where the proposed emendation, referred to by him in N. N. Q. Volume 5, page 436. In All's Well That Ends Well, Infinite Cunning 4. In Succumbing, of the folio 1623, is to be met with? If it be in the Athenaeum it has escaped my observation, although I have turned over the pages of that able periodical carefully to find it. I have a particular reason for wishing to trace the suggestion if I can, to the source where it originated. Owing to an accident, which it is needless to explain, 
The number of N and Q containing Mr. Singer's communication did not meet my eye until this morning. Mr. Singer. Mr. Singer's. J. Payne Collier. J. Payne Collier. May 22nd, 1852. Surnames. I have to thank many of your readers who have favored me with private letters on this subject since the printing of the prospectus of my dictionary of surnames in your columns, and before troubling you with a string of queries, I would briefly refer to two or three points in the kind communications under this head in N and Q of May 1st. E. H. Y. will find the question, surname or surname, slightly touched upon in my English surnames, third edit, volume 1, page 13 and argued at length in the Literary Gazette for NOV. 1842, in a correspondence originating out of a notice of the first edition of my book. I think the balance of evidence is in favor of surname, that is, a name superadded to the personal or baptismal appellation, which applies with equal propriety to the sobriquets given to monarchs and distinguished men, and to the hereditary designations of people of humble rank. Alexander Mitchell, your groom is no other than Alexander the Great, and Bill Rouse, your errand boy, is the namesake of the Red King who fell in the New Forest, the only difference being that the plebeians inherit their second name from their ancestors, while the magnates enjoy theirs by exclusive right. I do not think, therefore, that the distinction contended for by E. H. Y. is either necessary or desirable. Indeed, I consider sire name as a mere play upon a misspelt word. In saying this, I would by no means disparage your excellent correspondent, whose communications I always read with pleasure I might add, that the distinction of Nomen Patris Additum Proprio, Sire Name, and Nomen Supranomen Additum, Surname, is by no means new. I cannot quite agree with E. Assess suggestion as to the desirableness of omitting the names derived from Christian names this being one of the most interesting branches of my inquiry. I have already shown that from ten to thirty family names are occasionally found to proceed from one baptismal appellation, and at least half a dozen of the names to which E. S. calls my attention for explanation are so derived. To the termination cock, occurring in so many names, I have already given attention, and the result may be seen in Ing. CERN. Volume 1. Pages 160 to 165, both inclusive. Cock. To the surnames derived from extinct or provincial words designating employments, I am paying considerable attention, but although I am tolerably well acquainted with our medieval writers and their glossarists, there are many names ending in er, generally having in old records the prefix lo, which have hitherto baffled my etymological skill. W. L.S. remarks support the statements made in ing. CERN. Volume 1, page 38. E.T. Seek. To show that family names have scarcely become hereditary, in some parts of England, even now, in the middle of the nineteenth century. Without occupying your valuable space unduly, I would now submit the following queries. 1. What book gives any rational account of the origin of the Scottish clans, and their distinctive or family names? I know Buchanan's work but it gives very little information of the kind desired. Any authentic particulars regarding Scottish names will be acceptable. 2. What is the real meaning of worth, which forms the final syllable of so many surnames? I have seen no less than six explanations of it, 
which cannot all be correct. 3. Are there any works, besides dictionaries, in the Dutch, German, and Scandinavian languages which would throw light upon the family names of this country? 4. What is the best compendious gazetteer or topographical dictionary of Normandy extant? 5. Is anything known of a collection of surnames made by Mr. Cole, the antiquary, in the last century? It is mentioned in Collett's Relics of Literature, 1823. 6. Can any reader of N and Q explain the following surnames, which are principally to be found so early as the reign of Edward I? Alfox, Call Fox, Aster, Fritcher, Grix, Bebert, Bakepoos, Le Chaliner, Le Caze, Le Cachrel, Trelfer, Metcalf, Baird, Aird, Chag, Le Caron, at Bite. Mark Antony Lower. Mark Antony Lower. Lewis. Minor Queries. Owen, Bishop of St. Azath. To what family belonged John Owen, Bishop of St. Azath, mentioned in Winkle's cathedrals with so much honor? His father Owen Owen was Archdeacon of Anglesey, Rector of Burton Latimer. I cannot find either name in the printed pedigrees of the various families of Owen, nor in such of the Harl. Mrs. as I had time to examine. Wanted, the bishop's arms and crest, and any reference to his pedigree. It is said by Winkle that his monument is under the episcopal throne in St. Azaf's Cathedral. He died 1651, and his father 1592. Ursula. Ursula. S. T. Wilfred's Needle in Yorkshire. Where they used to try maids, whether they were honest. Burton. Does this stone exist? Ancient writers do not mention, says Lingard. Stonehenge, a berry, and sea, as appendages to places of worship among the Celtic. Therefore, may it not be that these remains of antiquity were devoted to vain superstitions of the ignorant people, if not to gloomy rites of the officiating priests of the British Druids? The gigantic obelisks of single stones, called the Devil's Arrows, near Boroughbridge, and the assemblage of rocks called Bramham Crags, a few miles northwest of Ripon, are considered to have been druidical. Is S. T. Wilfred's either of these? And can farther information about this rock be afforded? B. B. Governor of S. T. Christopher in 1662. Will any one be so kind as to inform me who was the governor of the island of S.T. Christopher in the year 1662? I have an original, but unsigned letter, from him to the contemporary Dutch governor of S.T. Martins, demanding reparation for an outrage of most extraordinary nature. He complains that the Dutch had seized and reduced to slavery the crew and passengers of an English ship during a time of peace. Is anything known of this affair? Or is there any means of discovering the names of the colonial governors of that age? The letter is dated September 1, 1662, and is endorsed. A copy of my letter to the Gov. of S. T. Martins. Ursula. Ursula. The Amber Witch. I am anxious to learn whether this be a pure fiction or a genuine document dressed up. Its strongest appearance of authenticity arises from the tedious pedantry of the ancient Lutheran pastor, its supposed author, which not only renders the perusal heavy, but also lets in various things unsuited to the decorum of modern manners. If a pure forgery, my inquiry extends to the motives of a fabrication, tedious to both reader and writer. A.N. Coffins for general use. In the parish church of Easingwold, Yorkshire, there was within the last few years an old oaken shell or coffin, 
asserted to have been used by the inhabitants for the interment of their dead. After the burial, the coffin was again deposited in the church. Are there any other well-authenticated instances of a similar usage? And do the words of the rubric in the order for the burial of the dead, when they come to the grave, while the corpse is made ready to be laid into the earth, render it probable that such a custom was generally prevalent in the Anglican Church since the Reformation? In two, I have met with one corroborative circumstance, in which numbers of bodies were disinterred in a piece of ground supposed to have been consecrated, and not a vestige of a coffin was found. Incognitus. Incognitus. The surname Bywater. Can any of your correspondents furnish me with particulars relating to the surname? Bywater? The earliest period from which I can trace it direct to the present day, and then only by family tradition, is about the close of the 17th century, or say 1680, about which time? Bywater. Married Miss Witham, and resided at Toten Hall, near Tadcaster, Yorkshire, a place celebrated as being the field of a battle fought between the York and Lancaster forces on Palm Sunday. 1461. Stowe mentions in his survey that John Bywater was a sheriff of London in 1424. Perhaps some of your readers, in Yorkshire or elsewhere, can throw a light on the subject, or can refer me to a book or MS, where information may be obtained. W. M. B. Robert Forbes. I should be glad if any of your correspondents could furnish me with any particulars relative to this talented and eccentric individual. He was the author of the Domini Deposed, in the Buchan dialect. On the title page of that piece he is described as Robert Forbes A.M., Schoolmaster of Petticulture, near Aberdeen. On application, however, to the session clerk of Petticulture, that functionary states that no such person was ever schoolmaster of that parish. Be this as it may, Forbes was obliged to leave Scotland on account of an intrigue, which he has humorously described in his Domini Deposed. He appears to have removed to London, where he commenced the business of a hosier, in a shop on Tower Hill, at the sign of the book. Here he composed that celebrated travesty on the speech of Ajax to the Grecian chiefs, also in the Buchan dialect. The white and doughty captains a Yupo their dupes sat down. A wrangle o' the common falc. In Baraches a stood rune. I think Forbes states that his place of business on Tower Hill was Hard by the shop of Robbie Mill. See Chalmers' Life of Rudderman. Forbes is supposed to have died about the year 1750. Hypatidasculus. Hypatidasculus. Gold share found in Jersey. I find in Lowndes' Bibliographer's Manual the following. The most wonderful and strange finding of a chair of gold, near the Isle of Iarcy, with the true discourse of the death of eight sir all men, and other most rare accidents thereby proceeding. London, 1595-42. Fourteen pages, including not only the title page, but a blank leaf before it, as was frequent about this time. Can anyone inform me where I can obtain a sight of this tract? I have searched the multivoluminous catalogue of the British Museum, that of the Bodleian, Grenville, Douse, and other collections, but in vain, and can find no trace of it anywhere. R.P.M. Alteration in Oxford Edition of the Bible. In the stereotype edition of the Bible, in 8 VO, printed at Cambridge, for the British and Foreign Bible Society, I find the word Judah, 2 Kron, 21, 2, substituted for Israel. 
This latter word is the reading of every copy of the authorized English version that I have been able to consult, including the 12MO, edition printed for the British and Foreign Bible Society at Oxford. No doubt Judah is the right word in this passage. The context requires it, and it is the reading of forty Hebrew Mises, and of all the ancient versions, except the Chaldee. It is also the reading of the Old English Version by Coverdale. But it has not been adopted by King James's translators. How has this deviation from their text crept into an edition emanating from a university press? Jerome. Jerome. When did Sir Gilbert Gerard die? A warrant was issued on the 1st of July, 1594, to the Lord Treasurer and Sir John Fortescue, see Burley's Diary, to inquire what profits had been taken for the office of the rolls betwixt the time of the death of Sir Gilbert Gerard and the entry of Sir Thomas Edgerton. Now Sir Thomas Edgerton entered on the 10th of April, 1594, and I have reason to believe that the office had been vacant for about a year. But I can find no notice of Sir Gilbert's death. He was a member of Gray's Inn, admitted in 1537, barrister 1539, ancient 1547, reader 1554, sergeant 1558, attorney general 1559, master of the rolls 1581, and during the interval between the death of Lord Chancellor Hatton, NOV. 22, 1591, and the appointment of Lord Keeper Puckering, May 28, 1592, one of the commissioners for hearing causes in chancery. James Spedding. James Spedding. Market Crosses. Have these interesting crosses occupied the attention of any one? Is there any work exclusively upon them? When was the old Market Cross at Barry St. Edmunds taken down? Is there any view of it extant, and where is it to be seen? What is the meaning of the passage from Gage's Valuable History of Thingo Hundred, page 205? Henry Gage, N.C., married at the Market Cross in the parish of St. James, St. Edmundsbury, February 11, 1655. Was any religious edifice standing on this spot at that period? C. G. Paddington. Spy Wednesday. I observed the other day, under the Spanish news in the Times of Wednesday, the April 14, 1852, the following paragraph. It being Spy Wednesday, the burst remained closed. Can any correspondent inform me the meaning of Spy Wednesday? It being a term I have never yet heard so applied? John Nurse Chadwick. John Nurse Chadwick. Kings Lynn. Passamers. Antiquities of Devonshire. In Bagford's MS. Collections on Writing, Printing, and C. In the British Museum, Asco's Cat, number 885, at FO. 102. Among writers on Devonshire appears the following Passamers. Antiquities of Devonshire. I.D. ye antiquitates of ye same county is collected out of ye antient books belonging to ye bishopric of Exeter, by one Mr. George Passamere, vicar of Alliscombe, in ye said county. Can either of your correspondents state whether Mr. Passamer's work is known to be in existence? J.D.E.S. Will-O-Wisp. Notwithstanding the steam engine may be said to have done almost as much towards destroying the gaseous exhalations of our boglands by the means of drainage as it has done towards the amelioration of the stagnant moors and intellectual morasses of society, it can hardly have dispelled every ignis fatuous from every quagmire, any more than it has even yet chased the ignorance from every dull head. 
The object of this communication is to ask for the names of a few specific localities where that noted misleader of the benighted, Will O' Wisp, still continues to manifest his presence? D. Mother of Richard Fitzjohn. Can any of your readers inform me who was the mother of Richard Fitzjohn, Lord Fitzjohn, who was summoned to Parliament in 23 Edward I, and died two years after in France? He was the son of John Fitzjohn Fitzjeffrey, who died near Guildford in 1258, and who was the son and heir of John Fitzjeffrey, Justiciary of Ireland in 1246. His mother's name is not mentioned in any authorities I have been able to consult, and I should feel particularly obliged by any one communicating to me his mother's name, and also his maternal grandmother's name, if they have ever been ascertained. Tours. Tours. Quotations wanted. Can any of your numerous correspondents oblige me with the information as to where the following may be found? The difficult passages they shun, and hold their farthing rushlight to the sun. Again this, and like unholy men, quote scripture for the deed. Again this, the entire epigram said to have been made by Porson on a fellow of his college, who habitually pronounced Euphrates short, instead of Euphrates. The only words I remember, it is now near thirty years since I heard it, are E.T. Coraput Fluxium, and Jekyll, the celebrated wit, rendered the epigram into English, and part of it thus. He abridged the river. H. M. Sons of the Conqueror, William Rufus and Walter Tyrell. Sir N. W. Raxall, Posthumous Memoirs, Volume 1, page 425, says of the Duke of Dorset. His only son perished at twenty-one in an Irish fox chase, a mode of dying not the most glorious or distinguished, though two sons of William the Conqueror, one of whom was a king of England, terminated their lives in a similar occupation. Who are these two sons? William Rufus would be one of them, but who is the other? And whilst I am on this subject, I would inquire, on what authority does the commonly received story of William II's death by the hand of Sir Walter Tyrrell rest? Tours. Tours. Brass of Lady Gore. Moody, in his Sketches of Hampshire, states that there is a brass of an abbess, 1434, Lady Gore by name, in the church of Nether Wallop. But in the Oxford Manual it is stated, Introduction, page 39, that only two brasses of abbesses are known, one at Elstow, Beds, to Elizabeth Hervey, and the other at Denham, Bucks, to Agnes Jordan, abbess of Sion, both circa 1530. Which is correct of these two authorities? Unicorn. Unicorn. Minor queries answered. Smith's Mrs. Relating to Gloucestershire. In Rudder's History of Gloucestershire Title. Nibley. Page 575. Is the following passage. John Smith, of Nibley, ancestor to the present proprietor, was very eminent for his great assiduity in collecting every kind of information respecting this county and its inhabitants. He wrote the genealogical history of the Berkeley family, in three folio misses, which Sir William Dugdale abridged and published in his Baronage of England. In three other folio misses he has registered with great exactness the names of the lords of manors in the county in the year 1608, the number of men in each parish able to bear arms, with their names, age, stature, professions, armor, and weapons. The sums each landholder paid to subsidies granted in a certain year are set down in another MS. 
He likewise committed to writing a very particular account of the customs of the several manors in the hundred of Berkeley, and the pedigrees of their respective lords. These and some other misses, which cost him forty years in compiling, are now, 1779, in the possession of Nicholas Smith, E.S.Q., the fifth from him in lineal descent. I shall feel much obliged to any of your readers who will inform me where these misses, or any of them, may now be seen. Those that I particularly want to inspect are printed in italics in the above quotation. Julius Partridge. Julius Partridge. Birmingham. Atkins, in his Gloucestershire, page 579, states that Smythe's misses were at the time he wrote, A.D. 1712, in the custody of his great-grandson, Sir George Smith, who generously communicated them to all that desired a perusal of them. Fosbrook, however, in the preface to his History of Gloucestershire, published in 1807, speaks of them as being in the possession of the Earl of Berkeley. He says, Of the noblemen and gentlemen who honored me with support and information, the Earl of Berkeley's permission to use Mr. Smythe's misses in every important extent has been of essential service. Fosbrook subsequently published, in 1821, a quarto volume of abstracts and extracts of Smythe's Lives of the Berkeleys from these manuscripts. A.D. Origin of Terms and Change Ringing I shall be obliged by any one informing me as to the origin and derivation of the terms. Plain Bob, Grandsire Bob, Single Bob Minor, Grandsire Treble, Caters, Sinks, E.T. Hoc Genus Omni, so well known to campanologists. Alfred Gaddy. Alfred Gaddy. Our correspondent may probably get some clue to the derivation of these terms in a work entitled Campanologia Improved or The Art of Ringing Made Easy, 3rd edition, 12 M.O., 1733. We may also mention that some notes of dedications of churches and bells in the Diocese of Gloucester will be found in the British Museum, add. Mrs. 5836, F. 189b. Kasefa's Bible. About the year 1828, there was issued a thin duodecimo pamphlet by someone who took the cognomen of Kasef and who proposed to publish an edition of the authorized version under the title of Kasefa's Bible, with the substitution of the Hebrew terms Elhim, Ele, Al, Adon, Adonai, N.C., N.C., for our English one's God, Lord, N.C., N.C. Can any of your readers inform me if this was ever published? And can they also favor me with the loan of the pamphlet for a month? The editor of the Chronological New Testament. The editor of the Chronological New Testament. 36. Trinity Square, Southwark. This Bible was published in 1830, as far as chapter 19, of the second book of Kings, with the following title, The Holy Bible, according to the established version, with the exception of the substitution of the original Hebrew names, in place of the English words, Lord and God, and of a few corrections thereby rendered necessary. With notes. London. Wesley and Davis 4-2. It contains a preface of four pages, and a list of the meaning or signification of the sacred names substituted in this edition, of nine pages. A copy of it is in the British Museum, the press mark 1276H. Proclamations to prohibit the use of coal, as fuel, in London. Dr. Batchofner, in the lecture which he is now delivering at the Royal Polytechnic Institution, mentions the fact that three separate proclamations were issued for this purpose, and that it was at last made a capital offense, 
and a man was actually accused, tried, condemned, and executed for burning coal within the metropolis. Now what I want to ascertain relative to the above facts is, 1. The date of each. 2. Any particulars that you or any of your correspondents may be kind enough to furnish. 3. The name, and station, trade, or profession of the person so executed. As Dr. Batchoffner has now often reiterated the above statement at the Polytechnic, and as it has always been received, at least when I have been there, with acclamations of surprise, I have no doubt that the particulars will interest many of your readers. Arthur C. Wilson. Arthur C. Wilson. We have not been able to find any account of the execution for burning coal noticed by Dr. Batchoffner, which probably took place during the reign of Edward I when the use of coal was prohibited by proclamation at London in the year 1306. These proclamations are noticed in Prince animadversions on the fourth part of Sir Edward Coke's Institutes, page 182, where it is said that, in the latter part of the reign of Edward I, when brewers, dyers, and other artificers using great fires began to use sea coals instead of dry wood and charcoal, in and near the city of London, the prelates, nobles, commons, and other people of the realm, resorting thither to parliaments, and upon other occasions, with the inhabitants of the city, Southwark, Wapping, and East Smithfield, complained thereof twice one after another to the king as a public nuisance, corrupting the air with its stink and smoke, to the great prejudice and detriment of their health. Whereupon the king first prohibited the burning of sea coal by his proclamation, which being disobeyed by many for their private lucre, the king upon their second complaint issued a commission of oyer and terminer to inquire of all such who burned sea coals against his proclamation within the city, or parts adjoining to it, and to punish them for their first offense by great fines and ransoms, and for the second offense to demolish their furnaces, kills wherein they burned sea coals, and to see. His proclamation strictly observed for times to come, as the record of 35 EDW. I informs us. On this subject our correspondent should consult Eddington's treatise on the coal trade, Ralph Gardiner's England's grievance discovered in relation to the coal trade, and Anderson's origin of commerce. Replies. Addison and his hymns. Volume 5, page 439. Any attempt to divorce Addison from his hymns in The Spectator, and to ascribe them to any other writer, is so great a wrench to the feelings of a sexagenarian like myself, that the question must at once be set at rest. In reply to J. G. F. S. inquiry, these hymns, or a portion of them, were claimed for Andrew Marvel by Captain Edward Thompson, the editor of Marvel's works, but a writer in Kippies's edition of the Biographia Britannica remarks, We shall content ourselves with observing that any man who can suppose that the ease, eloquence, and harmony of the ode, the spacious firmament, and sea, could flow from Marvel's pen, must be very deficient in taste and judgment. This claim on Captain Thompson's part was to have been considered under the article. Marvel. But the second edition of the Biographia did not, as we well know, extend beyond the letter F. But though we cannot concede these hymns to Marvel, he must not be underrated. His downright honesty of character and purpose must ever excite respect. His biographer strangely introduces him to us as a witty droll in the seventeenth century, the son of a facetious gentleman at Hull. In one respect he resembled our gifted essayist. His style and prose was so captivating that we are told. From the king down to the tradesman, his rehearsal transposed was read with great pleasure, 
he had all the men of wit on his side. To return to the hymns and the just claims of Addison to the whole of them. In The Spectator, number 453, Addison says, I have already communicated to the public some pieces of divine poetry, and as they have met with a very favorable reception, I shall from time to time publish any work of the same nature which has not yet appeared in print, and may be acceptable to my readers. Then follows the hymn, When all thy mercies, and see, coming from such a man as Addison, this must be considered as pretty strong evidence of authorship. In the Spectator, number 441, when introducing the hymn, the Lord my pasture, and see, Addison observes, As the poetry of the original is very exquisite, I shall present my readers with the following translation of it. With respect to this composition Bishop had remarks that Addison's true judgment suggested to him that what he drew from Scripture was best preserved in a pure and simple expression, and the fervor of his piety made that simplicity pathetic. No doubt seems to have crossed the bishop's mind as to the authorship. Sometimes Addison thought fit to throw a little mystery over these hymns. In Spectator, number 489, after alluding to Psalm Kvai, v. 23, they that go down to the sea, and sea, which Addison says gives a description of a ship in a storm, preferable to any other that he has met with, he subjoins his. Divine ode made by a gentleman on the conclusion of his travels, how are thy servants blessed? And see. The verses 4 to 8 are said to refer to the storm which Allison himself encountered on the Mediterranean, after he embarked at Marseilles in 1700. The hymn, When Rising from the Bed of Death. Spectator, number 513. A Thought in Sickness. Is contained in a supposed letter from a clergyman, viz. One of the club. Who assists me in my speculations? Tickle, in his exquisite elegy so worthy of its subject, when asking, What new employments please the unbodied mind? Adds, Or mixed with milder cherubim to glow. In hymns of love, not ill-essayed below. Were not the very hymns which we are speaking of in Tickle's mind? Addison's piety, we may well gather from his writings, was, as Mr. Macaulay observes, of a cheerful character. The feeling which predominates in all his devotional papers is that of gratitude, do we not find it also strikingly developed in his hymns? We all remember the beautiful lines. Ten thousand thousand precious gifts. My daily thanks employ. Nor is the least a cheerful heart. That tastes those gifts with joy. Let Bishop Ken and Addison retain their divine hymns, dear as they are, and let us hope ever will be, to man, woman, and child, whilst the English language is read or spoken. How greatly is their sublimity heightened, and their beauty enhanced, when we associate with them the purity of character and the assemblage of virtues which distinguish their excellent authors. J. H. Markland. J. H. Markland. Witchcraft, Mrs. Hicks and Her Daughter. Volume 5, page 394. The particulars your correspondent asks for have not been furnished, but on what authority, to move the previous question, does the alleged fact of such a trial and execution at Huntingdon in 1716 for witchcraft, stated by Mr. Wills, and adopted by the quarterly Rev. Rest? Mr. Wills, Sir Roger de Coverley, notes, page 126, mentions also the execution of two women at Northampton for witchcraft just before the Spectator began to be published, March 1, 1710-11, to 11, 
but gives no reference to any original source to support his statement. On the other hand, Hutchinson, the first edition of whose essay concerning witchcraft was published in 1718, and the second in 1720, who gives a chronological table of facts, informs us that the last execution in England for witchcraft was that at Exeter of Susan Edwards, Mary Trembles, and Temperance Lloyd in 1682, vid. Essay, page 41, first edit. He was too painstaking a writer to be in ignorance of cases which had occurred so recently, and he had the assistance, in collecting his materials, of the two chief justices Parker and King, and Chief Baron Barry, to whom the work is dedicated. Through their means he must have been informed of what had taken place on the circuits, if any cases of witchcraft on which convictions had arisen had actually come before the judges. When it is remembered what attention was directed to the trial of Jane Wenham in 1712, who, though condemned, was not executed, and on whose case a great number of pamphlets were written, it can scarcely be supposed that in four years after two persons, one only nine years old, I take the account in McKay's Popular Delusions, Volume 3, should have been tried and executed for witchcraft without public attention being called to the circumstance. I may add that in the Historical Register for 1716, which notices in the domestic occurrences all trials of interest, there is no mention of such a case, and that in two London newspapers for 1716, which I have in a complete series, though enumerating other convictions on the circuit, I have equally searched without success. As it is a matter of considerable historical interest to ascertain accurately when the last execution for witchcraft took place in England, I should be glad if any of your correspondents would refer me to the authority on which the statements of the trials circ. 1710 and in 1716 are founded. Mr. Wright, I observe, does not notice them, and his words are, The case of Jane Wenham is the last instance of a witch being condemned by the verdict of an English jury. Narratives of Sorcery and Magic, Volume 2, page 326. J.S. Crossley. J.S. Crossley. Dodo Queries. Volume 1, page 261. In answer to Mr. Strickland's third query, I beg to inform him that among the original authors who speak of the dodo as a living bird, Johann Niehoff merits a place. His work is entitled, Mr. Strickland's. Johann Niehoff's Gedenkwürdige Brazilian Sea and Lantriais, Behelsenau het gien op dezelf is Vorgevallen, Benefens in Bondage Beskridging van Gansch Nierlands Brazil, Zu van Lanschappen, Steden, Dyren, Gawassen, ALS Draften, Zeden en Godsdienst der Inwunders, and in Sonderheit, in Wijlopig Verhulder Merkwedix Vorvalen en Jeski Denison, die Zich. Gedurenzen Negenjarig Verblige in Brazil, in Diorligen en Obstant der Portugiesen, Tijen Dianzen, Zich Sedert het Jair. 1640-1649 Heben Togdragen. Dorgins Versiert met Verskide af Bildingen, not Laven Alder Gedekint. T. Amsterdam, Voor de Weduwe van Jacob van Mers, op de Kieserskracht, Anno 1682. This work, although published in six languages, and several times reprinted, adorned with a hundred exquisite engravings, and portrait of the author, seems to be no longer generally known. It was dedicated to Nicholas Whitson, burgomaster and councillor of Amsterdam, and the license granted to Jacob van Mers, the December 14, 1671, by the states of Holland and Westfriesland, is signed. Johann de Witt. The copy in my possession consists of two parts in folio, bound together in parchment, 
furnished with two indexes, which however do not mention all the volume contains, for we look in vain for the name Dodus, Dodo, or Drant in the indexes, and yet we find in the second part, page 282, a well-executed representation of this bird, and on the following page we read, Drant of Dodus, Abhet Islet Mauritius in Zanderheit, Haud Zika Vogel van in Wunderlich Gestalt, Drant, and by Dion's and Dodus Genoemt. High is van Groot Tushin in Vogelsturus and in Dish Hone, and Verschilt in Dish Talt, and Com ten deal deer me over in, ten enzian van de Viren, Pluimen en Stert. High heeft in Groot and Wanstal tie hoofed met in Velbedekt, and Verbial dat van in Kokoek, Dioogens in Groot en Zwart, de Hals Krom, Vet, and Steet vor Jut. De Beck is boven mate lang, Sterk en Blewak tie wit, behalve Dienden, where van Deander Swartak tie. In bovens gelactic zin, and bade spitz and cram. High spare den back lilic and zair widged open, is rant and vet van lijf, dat met sacked and grew plumen, als die van den strusvogel, bedeckt is. De bicken airs is dick, die bina op diard hanked, werem, and van wegen hun and lumen gang, dies vogel dodas by dians and genuant wert. Ein bade zigden zitten enage klein plumage pennen, in plets van vlugels, yud den gelen watach tie. An actor ain den stut, in plets van de stert, vidge kakrold penne viren van een zelf kluer. De bienen zin gilakti en dick, meer zeer kort, doc met vier vast en lang putten. Dies vogel is langsam van gang en dom, en late sich lichtelik vangen. Het vlies, in zonderheid dat van den borst is vet en eat there. High is zoos weyer, dat hondert mention ain dry of vier dranten geno teet in heben. Het vlies van Diauden is, zu niet geer gekukt is, zweer omt vertieren. Het wort oke in jesuten. Villages hebben zuwain gruden en herd en steen in de mage, die halakti en evenwal hart is. Should Mr. Strickland wish further information concerning the work of Johann Niehoff, I shall ever be happy to oblige him. Mr. Strickland. J. M. Van Meinen. J. M. Van Meinen. Amsterdam. From our Dutch contemporary, de Neversher, by whom similar replies have been received from H. G. and G. P. Roos. H. G. G. P. Roos. The Heavy Shove. Volume 5. Page 416. Like your correspondent, Mr. Clark, I too have kept a sharp lookout for this curious piece ascribed to Baxter, but having been unable to track it, I had long since come to the conclusion that its existence was apocryphal. Mr. Clark. The Rev. James Graves, in his Spiritual Quixote, written to ridicule Moravians and Methodists, notes it as a very good book of old Baxter's, among several others of questionable identity, forming the library of Geoffrey Wild Goose's grandmother. When we recollect the temptation offered in the quaint and uncouth titles of the old Presbyterians, we can hardly wonder at their enemies improving upon them, and in this way, it appears to me, we are to account for the respectable name of Baxter being popularly attached to a book which everybody talks about, but which nobody has seen. It is again mentioned by Richard Cooksey, in his Life of Lord Summers, Worcester, 1791, and taking its existence for granted, the author is astonished that Baxter, whom he extols to the skies, could so far condescend to the temper and debased humor of the times as to entitle one of his tracks a shove, and see. Commenting upon this, Wilson, in his History of Dissenting Churches, London, 1808, 
is the next who alludes to the book in question, but merely to shift its authorship from the famous Richard Baxter of Kidderminster to a more obscure individual of the same name, described as an elder in 1692 of the particular Baptist congregation worshipping in Winchester House. Of this person, he says, I know nothing excepting that he appears to have been a fifth monarchy man and to have been far gone in enthusiasm. Although thus doubting that the author of the saints rest wrote such a book as that described, I do not deny that there is a piece bearing the title in existence, but upon it the name of William Bunyan figures as the author. A copy of this was in the theological portion of the late Mr. Rod's books, sold by Sotheby and Company in 1850, and bears the imprint of London, 1768. This, I am inclined to think, is the only shove Mr. Clark is likely to meet with, and although I can give no further account of it, I am disposed to consider it the spurious catchpenny of some ignorant scoffer, who, taking his cue from graves, or rather from some earlier writer who has noticed it, thought it would be a good speck, and therefore launched into the world his effectual shove. Mr. Clark. J.O. Ground Ice. Volume 5, page 370. Your queerest J. C. E. is informed that the singular phenomenon of the formation of ice in the beds of running rivers has not escaped the notice of scientific observers. M. Arago has devoted a paper to its investigation in the Enwer du Bureau de Longitudes for 1832 or 1833, in which he specifies the rivers in which it has been observed. Indeed, although from its nature it is likely to escape notice, it is probably of not infrequent occurrence. Ireland, in his picturesque views of the Thames, quoting Dr. Plot, speaks of the subaqueous ice of that river. Colonel Jackson, in the fifth volume of the Journal of the Royal Geographical Society, alludes to its formation in the Neva, in a paper on the congelation of that river, and in the following volume of the same journal is an article by Mr. Weitz, especially devoted to the ground ice of the rivers of Siberia. More recently, Mr. Eisdale has contributed the result of his researches upon the same subject to the Edinburgh New Philosophical Journal, Volume 17. And finally, Dr. Farquharson has made public his observations upon the ground GRU of the rivers Don and Leocal, in Lincolnshire, in the Philosophical Transactions for 1835. There is also an article on the subject in one of the later volumes of the Penny or Saturday magazines. That bodies of running, water, the surface of which solidifies when exposed to a diminished temperature, should have a tendency to congelate in their sheltered depths, seems an anomaly which demands inquiry and explanation, and accordingly each of the above-mentioned writers has raised an hypothesis more or less probable, to account for the phenomenon. Dr. Farquharson would attribute it to the radiation of heat from the bottom, as dew is formed by radiation from the surface of the earth, but a consideration of the supervening obstacles to radiation— a body of moving water thickly coated with ice and even snow, destroys the plausibility of his theory. That of Mr. Eisdale, that the frozen spicule of the atmosphere falling into the water become nuclei, around which the water at the bottom freezes, seems merely frivolous. The explanation of M. Arago is more satisfactory, viz. That the lower currents of water being less rapid in motion than those intermediate, or at the surface, Congelation may be expected at a lower temperature, say 32 degrees Fahrenheit, the process of crystallization being favored by the pebbles, fragments of wood, and the uneven surface of the river's bed. 
After all, however, the phenomenon has been but imperfectly investigated under its various manifestations, and its real cause probably remains yet to be discovered. William Bates. William Bates. Birmingham. For an explanation of this occurrence, I would refer J. C. E. to Wool's Astronomy, Bridgewater Treatise. Unicorn. Unicorn. Character of Algernon Sidney. Volume 5. Pages 426. 447. Your two correspondents C. E. D. Page 426. And C. Page 447. Appear to have read Mr. Hepworth Dixon's query about Algernon Sidney either very hastily or very carelessly. Yet it seems to me plain enough. There is not one word in it about Barillon or Dalrymple, no inquiry about the home life of Sidney. As every one knows a great part of his time was spent abroad, it is probable Mr. Dixon thinks that anecdotes and allusions to so conspicuous a person may occur in the contemporary letters and memoirs of France, Germany, Italy, and C. And he asks for references to any such anecdotes or allusions as may have fallen in the way of readers of N and Q. Surely this is explicit. But what has Dalrymple or Mr. Croker to say in answer to a question about Sidney's way of life when abroad? That, as I take it, was the point, and a general discussion as to the character of the author of the discourses on government is a propos of nothing. As the subject has been opened, and as I know of none more interesting in the whole range of English history, I cannot refrain from at least entering one protest against C.S.'s description of the illustrious patriot as a corrupt traitor of the worst class. Mr. Hepworth Dixon's Mr. Dixon That Mr. Dixon is not single in his admiration of the character of Sidney I could quote many instances from our late Prime Minister downwards. But the title, Illustrious, can scarcely be denied to a man who, besides being of the best blood in England, played a leading part in the revolution, and was one of the closest thinkers and most masculine writers our language has to show. What makes a man illustrious? Birth, commanding position, intellect, learning, literary genius? Sidney had them all. But C. thinks he ought not to be called a patriot. What do his wisdom and moderation in the Civil War? his opposition to the extreme measures of Cromwell, his long solitary exile, his glorious death, count for nothing? There is, however, the charge of taking money from the King of France. No doubt this is a very curious case, and I too shall be anxious to see what light Mr. Dixon may be able to throw on it. The accusation rests on the sole authority of Dalrymple, and Dalrymple is not a man who can be taken on his mere word. He was a violent partisan. He hated the Whigs, and is convicted of having suppressed the truth, when it suited his party or his passions to misrepresent. The Barillon correspondence should be again examined, and if possible, further particulars of the money payments to our party leaders obtained. Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon. S. Walton. S. Walton. Belgrave Square. Monument to the memory of Mary Queen of Scots at Antwerp. Volume 5, page 415. Having visited the interesting city of Antwerp in the autumn of 1846, I can answer the query of your correspondent C. E. D. from personal inspection. The monument to Mary Queen of Scots is still in existence, and consists of a richly ornamented slab, placed at a considerable height from the pavement, against a pillar in, I think, 
the southern transept of the Church of St. Andrew. I was told on the spot that it was erected by two English ladies, but my informant was silent as to the tradition respecting the head. In the center of the carvings which adorn the upper part of the monument is inserted a medallion portrait of the beautiful but unfortunate queen. It is extremely well painted and represents her in that peculiar costume so familiar to those acquainted with her accustomed style of dress. I enclose a copy of the inscription. Maria Starda Scott E.T. Gall Reg. Jacob. Magn. Brighton. Reg. Mater. Anno 1568 in. Angle Refugi Descendants. Cogna. Elisab. Ibi Regnavit. Perfidia Senate. E.T. Herit. Post 19. Captivit. Annos. Religion Ergo. Cap. Obtrunk. Martyrium Consumavit. Anno D. N. 1587. Eta. Reggie. 45. Maria Starda. The wood carvings, with which this church abounds, especially those of the pulpit and its accessories, are marvelous efforts of art. M. W. B. Having visited the church of S. T. Andrew at Antwerp during the autumn of last year, I am able to inform your correspondency. E. D. Volume 5 page 415, that the monument to which he alludes still exists. The portrait of Mary Queen of Scots is above the tablet, which was, I believe, erected to the memory of Elizabeth Coral, who, after the execution of her mistress, resided at Antwerp, and was buried in that church. F. H. The monument dedicated to the memory of their beloved mistress by the two noble ladies of the household of Mary Queen of Scots, Lady Barbara Mowbray, the wife and Elizabeth Coral, the sister, of Gilbert Coral, the Queen's confidential secretary, still exists in the church of St. Andrew at Antwerp. The history, or rather story of the decapitated head having been borne away by these ladies, and buried at the foot of the pillar on which the monument is placed, which is alluded to by your correspondent, is too apocryphal for belief. There is no reason to suppose that any head of the Queen was carried away by these devoted women into exile excepting in the shape of her portrait painted on copper, which, instead of being interred beneath the monument, is still to be seen placed above the dedicatory inscription. It is true that in the edition of de Camp's Voyage Pittoresque de la Flandre, published at Paris and Rouen in 1769, it is stated that the monument was surmounted by sun, bust, and marber. But this error was corrected in the Antwerp edition of 1792, where it is correctly affirmed to be Sun portrait paint. Mention is made of this crown portrait, of a circular form, in Mackey's castles and prisons of Queen Mary, and of the close resemblance it bears to another in the possession of Lady Cathcart, who assured Mr. Mackey that the two portraits were painted by order of the Queen, and presented by her to two Scottish ladies, but whose names are not mentioned. The following epitaph to the memory of these two faithful servants of the unhappy Queen has also been preserved by Jacques Leroy in his Theatre Sacre du Brabant, Tom. 2. Page 90. It was copied by him from a blue marble slab placed over the entrance to the vault in which they were deposited. D.O.M. Sub hoc lap idarum feminarum vir pirum condunter corpora d. Barbari mubre etd. Elisabethi coro utrecht scoti, nobilissimi mare regini acubiculis, 
Quara monumentum superioria fidgeter columni. Illa vidua mortalium legi sesset 31. Giuliano 1616 etatus 57. Dum haec semper calebs 29. May etatus lx. Dnim.dc.xx. D. Barbari Mubre. D. Elisabethi Coral. 31. 57. 29. Lx. M.dc.xx. In the inscription placed against the pillar, dedicated to the memory of Queen Mary, Lady Barbara is said to be a daughter of Lord John Mowbray, Barbara Mowbray, D. Johann Mowbray, Baronies F. The writer of this note is desirous of obtaining some authentic information respecting these two noble Scottish families, and hopes this communication may serve to elicit what he has long sought to trace. The armorial bearings of both families, originally affixed to the monument, have been effaced. He would be glad also to be referred to any documents tending to throw light on the obscure history of poor Mary's intriguing French secretary, now, as to where he was born his connections and avocations in early life, how and by what secret influence he entered into the service of the queen, and lastly, how he came to be pardoned, and what became of him afterwards. She declared in her last hours that he was the cause of her death? NHRSL. NHRSL. Lord King, the Sclaters, Dr. Kellett, etc. Volume 5, page 457. If Balliolensis wishes for a more particular account of the Sclater family than that which follows, I shall be happy to correspond with him upon the subject. Balliolensis. Anthony Sclater, D.D., was vicar of Leighton Buzzard for fifty years, and died, aged one hundred, about sixteen twenty. His son, William Sclater, D.D., fellow of King's, and vicar of Pitminster in Somersetshire, is the person mentioned by Dr. Kellett. He was an exceedingly learned man, and the author of many theological works, for a list, see Bibbod. Cat, some of which were published after his death, which occurred in 1627. There is a curious and interesting account of him in Fuller's Worthies, Volume 1, page 119. See also Athene Oxoniensis. His son, William Sclater, also D.D. and Fellow of Kings, was Vicar of Columpton, Devon, and prebend of Exeter, and appears to have kept up by several works and sermons the reputation of the family for doctrinal theology. His son, Francis Sclater, B.D., fellow of C. 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 Oxon, May 17, 1667, A.T. 17, was likewise a person of extraordinary learning and abilities, as appears from several notices, and more particularly from the inscription on a silver gilt cup presented to C. C c. in memory of him by his father, and from an elegant Latin epitaph which was placed on the south wall of St. James's, Clerkenwell. He died in 1685 A.D. 35, leaving a son. Christopher Sclater, M.A., born 1679, rector of Lawton in Essex, and afterwards of Chingford in the same county. His eldest son. William Sclater, D.D. seems, from Mrs. still existing, to have inherited the theological talent of his ancestors, but O. S. P. Richard Sclater, E.S.Q., the second son of Christopher, was grandfather to William Lutley Sclater, E.S.Q., of Hoddington House, Hans, the present representative of the family. By a third son, Christopher Sclater was grandfather to Eliza Sclater, wife of Draper, E.S.Q., 
and celebrated for her platonic attachment to Lawrence Stern. From Mrs. Preserved in the family, it is clear that she must have been a woman of considerable talent. I had always supposed William Sclater, the non-juror, an author of an original draft, and C, to have been a brother of Francis Sclater. But if it be true that his work was a posthumous publication, as I learned for the first time from the note by the editor of N. and Q. I think it most probable that it was his father, the vicar of Columpton above mentioned, who would have been about sixty years of age in 1688, and who was certainly a man of learning and scholarship. Editor. I have no doubt that Edward Sclater, the pervert of Putney, belonged to the same family, though I know not in how near relationship. The name of Sclater, which is curious, seems to have originated in a place called Slaughter, Olim's Gloucester or Slaughter, Temp. King John, in Gloucestershire, where a family of Slaughters flourished as lords of the manor for upwards of three hundred years. The arms of both families are, Arg, a Salter A.Z., Crest, an Eagle essay, rising out of a ducal coronet. The motto of the Sclater family, which they owe, no doubt to one of their learned ancestors, is a Greek quotation from Gal. 6. 14. Epsilon mu nu tau sigmat alpha upsilon rho. Epsilon mu nu tau sigmat alpha upsilon rho. Epsilon mu nu tau sigmat alpha upsilon rho. About the commencement of the 17th century, another branch of the same family, whose patronymic was Thomas, was settled in Cambridgeshire. The last male representative of these, Sir Thomas Sclater, Bart, died without issue in 1684, see Burke's EXT Baronetages. I should be glad of any information respecting the connection of these two branches with each other, or of either with the parent stem in Gloucestershire. I should also be glad of information respecting one will. Slater, D.D., whose name is sometimes, I believe erroneously, spelt Slater, a very learned person, chaplain to James I., the author of some curious historical and genealogical works, and a celebrated Hebraist in those times. He was a cotemporary of Sclater of Pitminster, and died at a tendon in Kent about the same time, but it is doubtful whether they were relations. S. L. P. Oxford and Cambridge Club. Return. This Dr. Sclater appears to have been at one time minister of S. T. James Clerkenwell, from the following work in the Bodleian Catalogue. The Royal Pay, and Pay Master, or the Indigent Officer's Comfort. A Sermon Before the Military Company, on Rev. 2. 10, by William Sclater, D.D., Minister of S.T. James, Clerkenwell, 4-2. London. 1671. Ed. Ed. Return. F. Sclater S. T. B. C. 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 Oxon Olim Sosis, Ecle Anglicani Spes, Academi Gloria, Eriditorum Desiderium, Sinai Doctrini Contra Omnes Regnants Errors, Idiom Inter Iniquissima Tempora Propugnator Aserimus. Virfut Ingenio Acri Ac Vivido Judicio Sagasi Candor Animi Egregio. Cabus Accessit Eloquentia Singularis at Doctrina Omnibus Numerus Absoluta. Idioc Siv Disererit, Siv Conchinereter, Abilius or Non Populus Magus Quam Clarus Et Literati Avid Pendibent. Obit. May. 12, d. A.D. 1685. A.T. 35. Deflendus cadem multum, sed magus imitandus Guglielmus S.S.T.P. moestissimus pater p. A.D. 
the following notes are very much at the service of your correspondent Balialensis. It is true that they do not afford a precise answer to his immediate query, but they comprise particulars which may very probably lead to it, and will at least be interesting in compliance with his request for any notices respecting the family of Sclater. Balialensis. Anthony Sclater was minister of Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire for about fifty years, and died at the age of nearly one hundred. His son, William Sclater, was born there in 1577, educated at Eton and King's College, Cambridge, B.D. and D.D., preacher at Walsall, Company Staffordshire, presented to the vicarage of Pitminster, near Taunton, Company Somerset, by John Coles, E.S.Q., and to a rectory in the same county by John, afterwards Lord Powlett. Died at Pitminster, 1627. He was the author of the following works, and of others unpublished. A Key to the Key of Scripture or an Exposition, with Notes, on the Epistle to the Romans, and C. 4 to London, 1611. Dedicated to Sir Henry Hawley, Knight, and four other gentlemen. The Minister's Portion, a Sermon on 1 Cor 9, 13 14. 4 to Oxford, 1612. Dedicated to Thomas Southcote, E.S.Q., of Mohun's Ottery in Devonshire. The Six Old Salve, a sermon on PROV 18. 14, 4 2. Oxford, 1612. Dedicated to John Horner, E.S.Q., and to the devout Anna his wife, at Mells in Somerset. The Christian Strength, a sermon at Oxford on Philip. 4, 13. 4 2. Oxford, 1612. Dedicated to William Hill, E.S.Q. of Pitminster. An exposition upon the first epistle to the Thessalonians. 4 to London, 1619. Dedicated to the Lord Stanhope, Baron of Harringdon. The question of tithes revised, and C. 4 to London, 1623. Dedicated to Lake, Bishop of Bath and Wells. A brief exposition upon the second epistle to the Thessalonians. 4 to London, 1629. Dedicated to John Paulet, E.S.Q., his very honorable good patron, and Elizabeth his wife, his much honored patroness. Eutriosc Epistoli at Corinthios Explicatio, and C., edited by his son. 4 to Oxon, 1633. Dedicated to Edvardo Coletto, S. T. D. Sancti Petri Apud Exoniensis Residentiario, NEC non M. Giorgio Godio Call. Regulus in Academia Cantabric. Socio, so non ita pridem tutori delectissimo. A brief and plain commentary on the prophecy of Malachi, and C. Published by his son. 4 to London, 1650. Dedicated to Mr. Henry Walron of Bradfield, Devon. An exposition on the fourth chapter of the Romans, and C. Published by his son. 4 to London, 1650. Dedicated to John Bamfield of Poltimore in Devon, E.S.Q., a most eximious and exemplary worthy of the West. William Sclater, son of the above, was born at Pitminster, admitted member of King's College, Cambridge, in 1626, fellow of that college, chaplain to the Bishop of Exeter's barony of S.T. Stevens in Exeter, and preacher at S.T. Martin's in that city, 1639, prebendary of Exeter Cathedral, admitted vicar of Columpton, Company Devon, February 4, 1644. On the presentation of Roger Malak of Exeter, E.S.Q. living there in 1650, 
then styled B.D., and late Fellow of King's College, D.D., Minister of S.D. Peters Lepur, Broad Street, London, in 1654. Died before 1660. The following were his published works. The Worthy Communicant Rewarded, N.C., A Sermon in Exeter Cathedral, April 21, 1639. 4-2, London, 1639. Dedicated to Dr. Peterson, Dean of Exeter. Papistomastics, or Deborah's Prayer Against God's Enemies, A Sermon on Judges, V. 31. 4-2, London, 1642. The Crown of Righteousness, N.C., A Funeral Sermon at S.T. Botolph's Aldersgate, September 25, 1653, from Mr. Abraham Willock, B.D., N.C., 4-2, London, 1654. The registers of Pitminster and Columpton would perhaps assist in tracing the descendants of these worthies, whose name still exists near Exeter. Fuller under Bedfordshire gives some further particulars. The works above mentioned may almost all, I think, be found in the Bodleian. Bedfordshire. J.D.S. Balliolensis will find an account of William Sclater, whom he rightly supposes to have been at Eton and King's, in Harwood's Alumni Edenensis, page 200, under the year 1593-35 Elise. He will there see that he died 1627, in the fifty-first year of his age, and was the author of comment on the Romans and Thessalonians, sermons at St. Paul's Cross, and the treatise on tithes styled the minister's portion. Balliolensis. Under 1598 occurs. John Sclater. From M.S. Account it is stated. John Sclater, B.D., 1613, Rector of Halford, Somerset, then of Church Lawford, Warwick. C. Dugdale. Query, if ejected 1662? If so, his farewell sermon in Collection A. C. 2 Harwood, page 203. Under 1626 occurs. William Sclater, at page 227. Of Harwood, probably a mistake for 1625. In M.S., under 1625 appears. William Sclater, son of W. S., of 1593, of Pitminster, Somerset, where his father was V. R., of St. Steph, Exxon, D.D. 1651, Minister of St. Peter Lepur, Broad Street. C. English Worth, 8 Vio, page 21. P.R. of Exxon, September 18, 1641. C. Walker, O.B. 1656. C. Wood. Edward Kellett occurs in Harwood under 1598, page 204. The account of his works given there agrees with the extract from the Gentleman's Magazine. It is also stated that he was the author of a sermon entitled A Return from Argier, preached at Minehead, March 16, 1627, on the readmission of a relapsed Christian into our church, on Gal. V. 2, London, 1628-42 and that he was a sufferer from the rebellion. In Harwood he is described as rector of Bagborough and Crockham, and canon of Exeter. The M.S. account is very short. He is there described as R. of Robero Sam, can. Of Exxon. See his works in Wood. J. H. L. Birthplace of S. T. Patrick. Volume 5, page 344. From the following extracts I send in answer to your correspondence, Sirep, 
there seems to be very great doubt if S.T. Patrick ever existed in reality, but that we ought rather to place him in the same category with S.T. Amphibolus, S.T. Dennis, and C. Dr. Levitch relates that. C. Rep. In Usuids and the Roman Martyrology, Bishop Patrick of Auvergne is placed at the 16th day of March, and on the same day the office of the Lateran Canons, approved by Pius V, celebrates the festival of a Patrick, the Apostle of Ireland. The 17th of March is dedicated to Patrick, Bishop of Nola. Had not Dr. Maurice, then, the best reasons for supposing that Patricus Auvernensis sunk a day lower in the calendar, and made for the Irish a Patricius Hibernensis? This seems exactly to be the case. It is very extraordinary the 16th and 17th of March should have three Patricks, one of Auvergne, another of Ireland, and a third of Nola. The antiquities of Glastonbury record three Patricks, one of Auvergne, another Archbishop of Ireland, and a third an abbot. The last, according to a martyrology cited by Usher, went on the mission to Ireland, 8850, but was unsuccessful. He returned and died at Glastonbury. If all that is now advanced be not a fardell of monkish fictions, which it certainly is, the last Patrick was the man who was beatified by the bigoted Anglo-Saxons, for his endeavors to bring the Irish to a conformity with the Romish Church. A.D. Dr. Aiken remarks upon this. The author now ventures upon the bold attempt of annihilating S.T. Patrick. It is an undoubted fact that this saint is not mentioned in any author, or in any work of veracity, in the 5th, 6th, 7th, or 8th centuries. His name is in Bede's Martyrology, but it is more than probable that that martyrology is not Bede's, nor can it be conceived that Bede, in his other works, should never notice the signal service rendered by Patrick to the Roman Church, and the signal miracles wrought by him in its behalf, if he had ever heard of them for the old Venerabilis was zealously devoted to that church and its mythology. The saint certainly vanishes into an airy nothing, if we are to credit the above authors. I have also consulted where, a Roman Catholic writer, author of the Antiquitates Hibernicae, and nowhere can I find a trace of S. T. Patrick's birthplace, although he is frequently mentioned. In his seventh chapter he says, Sancti Precipui Hibernicae Seculi Quinti, Cuyangelium and Hibernia Predicarent, Furum Palladius, Patricius, and many others. The 26th chapter entitled Monasteriologia Hibernica, Siv Diatriba de Hibernii Coenobius, in qua origins eorum et ali antiquitates apparienter, gives the names and titles of the founders of monasteries, as also their dates, and in speaking of one of them, but in this case specifying no date, relates a curious circumstance as to the building of a church. It may perhaps interest your readers, and I will therefore quote the passage, page 212. Sanctus Patricius constructed hoc coenobium canonicis regularibus, ac prefessit abitem s. Denium, ecclesium vero agisit, juxta jocellinum furnacensum, contra morum receptum, non ab occidenti in orientum, sed a septentrion in ostrum protensum. This nevertheless hangs upon the reality of a S.T. Patrick. In another part of the same work it is said of a monastery, page 219. S. Debiocum fundes ferent seculo five, viventi S. Patricio. Alii S. Patricium fundatorum volent. From these quotations it is clear where treated him as a real actor in Irish ecclesiastical affairs, 
but the two first-named authors appear to set the matter at rest. E.M.R. Grantham. Replies to Minor Queries. Cabal, Volume 4, page 507. The two quotations from Hudibras evidently refer to two different meanings of this word cabal. The first, alluding to the ancient Kabbalah, or mysteries, or secrets, from whence Kabbalistic. The second, to its more modern, or political acceptation, both, however, including the idea of secrecy or privity, as opposed to a general participation of knowledge or purpose. It is the latter application of the word to which the inquiry of E. H. D. D. at page 443, volume 4, refers, and Mr. Kersley S. quotation from a book printed in 1655, page 139, volume 5, proves its usage in this sense at least seven years before Burnett's derivation of the word from the initials of the five chief ministers of Charles II. I do not think that Pepys could use the word cabal as applicable to the king's confidential advisers. Several years before Burnett derived it from their initials, the ministers in question having been appointed circa 1670. Burnett's definition was published in 1672, and Pepys was appointed secretary to the Admiralty in 1673. Blunt, in his Glossographia, 3rd edition, 1670, says, We used to say he is not of our cabal, that is, he is not received into our council, or is not privy to our secrets. Cole, in his English Dictionary, 1685, defines cabal. A secret council. And Bailey derives cabal from cabaler, French. A party man. And to cabal, from cabaler, French. To plot together privately to make parties. And cabal from. A junto, or private council, a particular party, a set, or gang. Mr. Kersley. I find among my papers a scrap relating to the derivation of the word wig. I do not know where I took it from, but the origin which it gives to this much-used word is new to me, and may be to some others of your readers also. The word wig was given to the Liberal Party in England by the Royalists in Cromwell's days, from the initial letters of their motto, We Hope in God. P.E.T. Stoke Newington. Portrait of Charles Mordaunt, Earl of Peterborough, Volume 5. Page 441. There is very fine portrait of Charles Earl of Peterborough, the famous Earl, at Drayton House, in Northamptonshire, the ancient seat of the Mordaunt family, and which is now in the possession of W.M. Bruce Stopford D.S.Q. J.B. A full-length portrait of the Earl of Peterborough, by J.B. Van Loo, is in the collection of the Marquis of Exeter at Burley. The picture belonged to the father-in-law of the present owner, the late W. S. Points, Yescu of Midgem. J. P. J. R. J. P. J. R. The Word Oasis, Volume 5, Page 465. I beg to enclose Mr. Temple an instance of the use of the above word in English poetry. It will be found in a poem entitled Hopes of Matrimony, by John Holland, author of Sheffield Park, published by Francis Wesley, 1822, and now lies before me. Mr. Temple. Is there a manly bosom can enfold? A human heart, so withered, dead, and cold, as not to feel, or never to have felt. At genial love's approach, its ices melt? No, in the desert of the dreariest breast. Some verdant spot, its presence have contest. Though parched and bloomless, and as wild as bare. A rill of nature once meandered there. 
he and where Arabia's arid wastes and tombs. Whole caravans, the green oasis blooms. Oasis will be found also in Lempriere's classical dictionary, but not in the same sense as above. M.C.R. The word oasis, about which your correspondent H. L. Temple inquires, is marked in Bailey's edition of Facciolati's Latin Dictionary, in the appendix, Oasis, making the a short. H. L. Temple. Frightened out of his seven senses, volume 4, page 233. A passage containing the words, seven senses, occurs in the poem of Taliesin called Why Bidmar, or the Macrocosm, of which a translation may be found in volume 21, page 30, of the British Magazine. The writer of the paper in which it is quoted refers also to the Mysterium Magnum of Jacob Bayman, which teaches how the soul of man, or his inward holy body, was compounded of the seven properties under the influence of the seven planets. I will adore my father, my God, my supporter, who placed throughout my head the soul of my reason, and made for my perception my seven faculties of fire and earth and water and air, and mist and flowers, and the southerly wind, as it were seven senses of reason, for my father to impel me, with the first I shall be animated. With the second I shall touch. With the third I shall cry out. With the fourth I shall taste. With the fifth I shall see. With the sixth I shall hear. With the seventh I shall smell. And I will maintain that seven skies there are over the astrologer's head. N.C. W. Fraser. W. Fraser. Eagle's Feathers, Volume 5. Page 462. The author quoted alludes to Pliny Nat. Hist. BXC4. Aquilarum penny mixtas reliquarum alitum penas deverent. K. The allusion concerning which Arncliffe inquires is explained by the following passage in a thousand notable things of sundry sorts. And C. Printed by John Haviland, MDCXXX. MDCXXX. Elagus writes that the quills or pennies of an eagle, mixed with the quills or pennies of other fowls or birds, doth consume or waste them with their odor, smell, or air. Page 48. Edward Peacock, June. Edward Peacock. Botsford Moors. Arms of Thompson, Volume 5, page 468. It may be interesting perhaps to J.D. to know that I have a book plate with the arms described. Per pale, ardent and sable, a fess embattled between three falcons, countercharge, Beldor. Underneath is engraved. William Thompson, of Humbleton, in Yorkshire, ESQ, 1708. The crest, a sinister arm in armor, grasping a broken lance on a torse of the colors. J.D. Spess. Spess. Spick and Span New, Volume 3, page 330. In Dutch, spiker means a warehouse, a magazine and spange, spangle, means anything shining and thus spick and span new means, shining new from the warehouse. See Tux D.I.V. of Pili, Volume 1, page 527. This, with the guesses of Wachter and Ear, may be seen by your correspondent in Richardson. Q. Junius Rumors, Volume 5, pages 125, 159, 474. N. N. Q contains abundant speculation about the vellum bound, to which your correspondent refers, page 474. 
Some persons I know consider it doubtful whether the printer did have a copy bound in vellum as Junius directed, and they strengthen their doubts by, as they assert, no such copy having ever been met with. Mr. Cramp, on the contrary, maintains that such copies are so common that the printer must have taken the Junius copy as a pattern. As Mr. Cramp, I observe, is become a correspondent of N and Q. I will take leave to direct his attention to the question asked by V. B. Volume 3. Page 262. Others, again, assuming that the printer did have a copy specially bound for Junius, think it doubtful whether it ever reached him. Of these differences and speculations your correspondent is evidently unaware, and he therefore raises a question as if it were new, which has been under discussion for thirty years. As a set-off, however, he favors us with an entirely original anecdote, so original, that neither the anecdote nor the tea service were ever heard of by H. S. Woodfall's family. Yet it must be admitted that his story has all the characteristics of authenticity, names, dates, places. I know, indeed, but one objection, viz. that Mr. Woodfall never was. In prison on account of the publication of these redoubtable letters, he was tried, but acquitted, under the somewhat celebrated verdict of guilty of printing and publishing only. Mr. Cramp. Mr. Cramp. T. S. W. Cuddy the Ass, Volume 5, Page 419. Jameson is sometimes very absurd, but in my edition of his dictionary, Edinburgh, 1808, I do not find the Hindu root for Cuddy which you attribute to him. I only find Cuddy an ass, probably a cant term, with a reference to the Lothian dialect. Cuddy. But if it be worth while to answer such questions, I would remind the inquirer that in Northumberland and the adjoining districts of Scotland, Cuddy is the contraction of the very common name of Cuthbert, Test, Cuddy Hedrick, and that is the ass is called in other districts, Ned and Neddy, and in others again Dick and Dickie. So he is called in Northumberland Cuddy by a name familiar in the locality. Everywhere the male is called Jack, and the female Jenny. Are these also derived from the Hindustani? C. The authorship of the epigram upon the letter H, volume 5. Page 258. I observe that a controversy has lately been carried on in your columns upon the authorship of the celebrated enigma on the letter H. Permit me, as one well acquainted with the circumstances, to corroborate the statement of E. H. Y. The epigram in question was written at the Deep Dean, the seat of the late Thomas Hope, E.S.Q., by Miss Catherine Fanshawe, in the year 1816, as is recorded in the heading of the original M.S., of it contained in a contemporary Deep Dean album still existing. You may rely upon the authenticity of this information, which proceeds from one acquainted with the volume in question and its history. B.E.P. John Rogers, Proto-Martyr, N.C. The reply to my inquiry, as to the present descendants of this celebrated divine, which appeared in N.N.Q. Volume 5. Page 307 is scarcely sufficient for the genealogical purpose for which I required the information, but I am not the less obliged to E. D. for the attention given to my request, and I should esteem it a favor to be further informed where I could procure a complete genealogical account of the family, to what county the martyr belonged, or if other. Descendants survived besides those mentioned by E. D. John Rogers, gentleman, buried in the nave of St. Sepulchre's Church, London, 1775, 
was a native of Wales. I should feel grateful for any information either in N and Q or directed to me. Joseph Knight. Joseph Knight. Ilstone Hall, Leicestershire. Jiho. Volume 2, page 500. G is undoubtedly. Go. And a hit or hate, common with wagoners and knots, is. Yate jite. Or. Gate. Gang your gate. Q. Treases, volume 2, page 327. FRST, a sheath case, or box to put things in, and more particularly a case of little instruments, or scissors, bodkin, penknife, and C, now commonly called at we. Cotgrave. Shenstone enumerates, among the temptations to drain the purse. The cloud wrought canes, the gorgeous snuff boxes. The twinkling jewels, the gold eight we. With all its bright inhabitants. Economy, part two. Q. Ancient Timber Town Halls, volume five. Pages 257. 295. 470. During a visit to Sudbury in Suffolk in 1828. I was much struck with the old quaint-looking timber building used for corporate purposes, called the Mood Hall. I made a rude pen and ink sketch of the principal front. On a subsequent visit I found this building was standing, but that it had ceased to be used, a new town hall having been erected. Since then I hear that the Mood Hall has been pulled down and its site thrown into the marketplace. If I recollect rightly, the principal window of twelve lights was unglazed. C. H. Cooper C. H. Cooper. Johnny Cropot, Volume 5, page 439. When the French took the city of Arras from the Spaniards, under Louis XIV, after a long and a most desperate siege, it was remembered that Nostradamus had said, Lest ancients Cropot's prendrant Sarah, the ancient toads shall Sarah take. This line was then applied to that event in this very roundabout manner. Sarah is Arras backward. By the ancient toads were meant the French, as that nation formerly had for its armorial bearings three of those odious reptiles, instead of the three flowers de luce which it now bears. Seward's Anecdotes, Volume 1, page 78. Nostradamus died in 1566. C.B. Juba Isham, Volume 5, page 435. The signature is two names. The first needs no explanation. Juba, in Cato is the lover of Marcia. The second may merely mean that the first is assumed, or false. We have such a surname as Isham, but it is spelt with one S only. C.B. Optical Phenomenon, Volume 5, page 441. The circumstance mentioned by your correspondent is only one instance of a very familiar fact, that sight is rendered clearer by diminishing the quantity of rays, which might confuse one another. Some for that purpose look between two fingers brought near. Others nearly close their eyes and see. C.B. Bishop of London's House, Volume 5, page 371. In the Wards of London by H. Thomas, 1828, Volume 1, page 7, we are told that the great fire of London having destroyed the palace of the Bishop of London, which was near St. Paul's Cathedral, this house, Peter House, which stood on the west side, about the middle of Aldersgate Street, was purchased for the city mansion of the prelates of the diocese, one of whom only resided there, Bishop Henchman, who died there, and was buried at Fulham, A.D. 1675. It was then called London House, 
and being subsequently deserted, was let out into private tenements until 1768, when it was entirely destroyed by fire while in the occupation of Mr. Seddon, an upholsterer and cabinet maker. A.D. A large brick building now covers the site and retains the name of London House. It is occupied by Mr. H. Burton Builder. In the work above quoted I find no mention of a residence of the bishops of London in Bishopsgate. I therefore conclude that the one I have alluded to is that respecting which your correspondent wishes to learn. T.B. T.B. In Vini Portum, Volume 5, Pages 10. 64. Actum Eniagas is generally a safe motto, and a particularly safe one when so learned a scholar as Mr. Singer has preceded. However, it may do no harm to mention that since the query occurred in the N and Q, I have met with two quotations of a very analogous kind. Mr. Singer. The first is given as a quotation, and may be found at the end of George Sandy's Divine Poems, 1648. Jam Tedigi Portum, Valit. The second may be found amongst the poems of Walter Haddon, and refers to something more ancient still. In Obitum N, Poincy Aquitus. Ex Anglico Clarissimi Viri Th Heniagii. Promedios Mundi Strepidus, Caicos Tumultus. Turbida Transigi Tempora, Poincis Iques. Nolis Erat Terror, Capectora Frangir Posset. Mens Mea Perpetual Quat Quereritor Erat. Nunctinio portum, valiant Ladibria mundi. Vita perennis ave, vita caduca vale. Arti. Arti. Warmington. Cane decane. N.C. Volume 5. Page 440. I cannot inform your correspondent who was the author of the punning couplet. Cane decane canis, said any cane, cane decane. Decane decanus, cane decane cane but I think that he has injured the spirit of the original in his free translation. Decanus means a dean, not a deacon, and the word canis, which is both masculine and feminine, was often used by the poets in a metaphorical sense. It seems to me that the author was alluding to some aged dignitary of his day, who had been in the habit of singing songs upon the ladies. I therefore submit to you my more free translation. 1. Dean Hoare you sung of your o'er and o'er, Malia Shore. Two, now shut the door, and of such lore, sing no more. Dean Hoare, Bavius, Bavius. These lines are cited by Mr. Sandys in the introduction to his specimens of macaronic poetry, and are there attributed to Professor Porson, William Bates, William Bates, Birmingham. Fides Carbonarii, Volume 4, Pages 233-283. In reply to Quirist as to this saying, E. H. D. D. states that it originated in an anecdote told by Dr. Milner or some other controversial writer. A co-porter being asked what he believed, replied, What the Church believes. And being asked what the Church believed, replied, What I believe. Quirist. Now I find the same meaning given by Henry de Bellingen, in his Etymologie de Pierrevi Francais, printed at The Hague, 1656. His words, as quoted by Leroux de Lincey, are as follow. On fate un cantica don origin a si proverb. Un charbonne estant enquis par le diable de si chuaio croate, li respondit, 
toujours je crois si que à l'église croit. De la est venu que lorsqu'on a voulu marquer chouan à mavait un FOI firm, mais sans science, on a dit, la FOI du charbonne. Also, in P. J. Larue's Dictionnaire Comique, 1750. La FOI du charbonne. Quand on parle d'un FOI implicite, Cafet coar a un crétin en general tout si l'église croit. In Landé Dictionary 4-2. La FOI du charbonne. FOI simple et avugulka eni raisonné pa. Philip S. King. Philip S. King. The Book of Jasher, Volume 5, page 415. I have a translation of a work thus named. It was published by Noah and Gould, 144. Nassau Street, New York, 1840. The publisher's preface mentions Eliv's work as a miserable fabrication. Claims, as the original of his own, a book said to have been discovered in Jerusalem at its capture by Titus and preserved at Venice, 1613. It also speaks of the owner and translator as resident in England. I have a vague idea that I heard from New York at the time I received my volume that the Duke of Sussex had possessed a copy of the Book of Jasher, and that some steps had been taken towards the translation by order of His Royal Highness. I mention this merely to lead inquiry. I cannot trust my memory as to the verbal expression of a friend so many years ago. I have long wished the Book of Jasher to obtain a fair hearing, and a more critical examination than I am qualified to make, and I shall be happy to lend it to your correspondent L. L. L in furtherance of what I think an act of justice. F.C.B. Sites of Buildings Mysteriously Changed, Volume 5, page 436. Perhaps W. H. K. may deem the following account of the foundation of Bideford Bridge near enough to his purpose. Before whose erection the breadth and roughness of the river was such, as it put many in jeopardy, some were drowned, to the great grief of the inhabitants, who did therefore divers times, and in sundry places, begin to build a bridge, but no firm foundation, after often proof being found, their attempts came to no effect. At which time Sir Richard Gornard was priest of the place, who, as the story of that town hath it, was admonished by a vision in his sleep, to set on the foundation of a bridge near a rock, which he should find rolled from the higher grounds upon the strand. This he esteemed but a dream, yet to second the same with some art, in the morning he found a huge rock there fixed, whose greatness argued it the work of God, which not only bred admiration, but incited him to set forward so charitable a work, who f sons, with Sir Theobald Grenville, knight, lord of the land, and a special furtherer and benefactor of that work, founded the bridge there, now to be seen, which for length, and number of arches, equalizeth, if not excelleth, all others in England. And see dot. Risden's Survey of Devon S. V. Bideford. Bideford. The traditions relating to S. T. Cuthbert and the foundation of Durham Cathedral are too well known to find a place in N. N. Q. J. Sansom. J. Sansom. Wine, Volume 5, pages 321. 474. Dot. Red joined for wine. Divers parcels of joined wainscot, windows, and other implements of household. I wainscot of joiner's work. I have no doubt this is the true reading, having once made the very same mistake myself in reading and printing an inventory of this period. Spes. Spes. Sweet Willie O, Volume 5, P. 
page 466. This song was written by Garrick for the Jubilee in honor of Shakespeare, which was held at Stratford-upon-Avon in 1769, and was sung on that occasion by Mrs. Baddeley. It is printed in Shakespeare's Garland, 1769, in the Poetical Works of David Garrick, 1785, and in the History of Stratford, 1806. Bolton Corny. Bolton Corny. Miscellaneous. Notes on books, etc. We have received from Messrs. Rivington, four volumes of their new and complete edition of the works and correspondence of the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, and we do not know that a more valuable contribution could be made to our stores of historical and political literature than this handsome collection of the writings of one whom Sir Robert Peel pronounced the most profound of the philosophic statesmen of modern times, dear to all lovers of literature as must be the memory of Burke, the friend of Johnson, who declared, he was the only man whose common conversation corresponded with the fame which he had in the world, and of Goldsmith, who complained that he to party gave up what was meant for mankind, and that he, too deep for his hearers still went on refining, and thought of convincing, while they thought of dining. The present aspect of the political world compels us to look at him rather as a politician than as a man of letters. Considering, therefore, not only the profoundly philosophical character of his political works, but also the elevated tone of political morality which is displayed in the writings of Edmund Burke, a wisdom and a morality rendered still more attractive by the unrivaled eloquence with which they are enunciated. The present handsome and cheap collection of those writings is alike creditable to the enterprise of the publishers, and well calculated to exercise a beneficial influence upon the political condition of the country. It would indeed be well if all who aspire to seats in the new parliament would fit themselves for such positions by a study of the writings of Edmund Burke. Mr. Willis has just issued a neat reprint of what has now become a very scarce volume, The Poetry of the Anti-Jacobin a work which may be regarded as a model of political satire. It is accompanied by occasional notes elucidating allusions now become obscure through lapse of time, and the blanks in the text have been filled up with the names of the various persons introduced or alluded to. Some attempt has also been made to identify the various authors by whom the several articles were written, but we are surprised to find this so imperfectly executed, for when the editor speaks of the authorship being in many cases mere matter of conjecture, it is clear that he did not know of the very curious, and we may add, authentic list, furnished to the third volume, page 348, of this journal by Mr. Hawkins of the British Museum, who has also given a history of the work, and of the manner, in which it was conducted, which ought to have been made use of. Books received. Legal iambics in prose, suggested by the present chancery crisis, a quaint discourse, in which there is no small learning and humor and to which may be applied, with some variation, Gay's well-known epilogue. Books received. Our pamphlet has a moral, and no doubt. You all have sense enough to find it out. An essay upon the ghost belief of Shakespeare, by Alfred Roth, is a little pamphlet well-deserving perusal, in which the author, who holds that ghost belief, rightly understood, is most rational and salutary, endeavors to show that it must have had the sanction of such a thinker as Shakespeare. Rome in the nineteenth century, containing a complete account of the ruins of the ancient city, the remains of the Middle Ages, and the monuments of modern times, by Charlotte A. Eaton. Fifth edition, volume one, 
The new issue of Bond's Illustrated Library, with its 34 engraved illustrations, will be found a very useful and instructive guide to the Eternal City, the Heroids, the Amours, Art of Love, and Sea, of Ovid translated, with the judicious exception of the more questionable passages, which are left in the original Latin, forming the new volume of Bond's classical library. In his standard library we have now the fifth and concluding volume of what has been well described as the enthralling biographies of Vasari. Thus for considerably less than one pound has the English lover of art the means of possessing one of the most interesting and instructive works on the subject of his favorite study ever produced. The work deserves, and we trust, will meet with a very wide circulation. Books and odd volumes. Wanted to purchase. Boothby's Sorrows Sacred to the Memory of Penelope. Cowdale and Davies. 1796. Boothby's Sorrows Sacred to the Memory of Penelope. Chaucer's Poems. Volume 1, Aldine Edition. Chaucer's Poems. Biblia Sacra, Vulgar Edit, Cum Commentar. Menokii. All Lost in Ghent, 1826. Volume 1. Biblia Sacra. Baranti Dux de Burgundia. Volumes I and II. First, second, or third edit. Paris. Ledvicat, 1825. Baranti Dux de Burgundia. Biographia Americana. By a gentleman of Philadelphia. Biographia Americana. Potgizari de Condition Savorum Apud Germanos. 8 Vio. Colonel Agrip. Potgizari de Condition Savorum Apud Germanos. The British Poets. Whittingham's edition in 100 volumes, with plates. The British Poets. Repository of Patents and Inventions. Volume 45. Second Series. 1824. Repository of Patents and Inventions. Volume 5. Third Series. 1827. Nicholson's Philosophical Journal. Volumes 14. 15. 1806. Nicholson's Philosophical Journal. Journal of the Royal Institution of Great Britain. No. 11. Second Series. Journal of the Royal Institution of Great Britain. Sorokold's Book of Devotions. Sorokold's Book of Devotions. Works of Isaac Barrow, D.D., late Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. London, 1683. Volume 1. Folio. Works of Isaac Barrow, D.D. Lingard's History of England. Volume 6. 7, 8. 9, 12. 13. Cloth. Lingard's History of England. Fabricii Bibliotheca Latina. Edition Ernesti. Leipzig, 1773. Volume 3. Fabricii Bibliotheca Latina. The Anacalypsis. By Godfrey Higgins. 2 Volumes 4-2. The Anacalypsis. Codex Diplomaticus Evi Saxonici, Opera J. M. Kemble. Volumes I and II. 8 Vio. Codex Diplomaticus Evi Saxonici. Echel, Doctrina Numorum. Volume 8. Echel, Doctrina Numorum. Bruham's Men of Letters. Second Series, Royal 8 Vio, Boards. Original Edition. Bruham's Men of Letters. Knight's Pictorial Shakespeare. Royal Aidvio, Parts 42, 43, 44. L. and Lee. 
Knight's Pictorial Shakespeare. Condor's Analytical View of All Religions. 8 VO. Condor's Analytical View of All Religions. Hallowell on the Dialects of Somersetshire. Hallowell on the Dialects of Somersetshire. Sclopateria, or Remarks on Rifles, and C. Sclopateria? Remarks on Rifles. Gems from the British Poets, for volumes, Taez, may be had on application to the publisher. Gems from the British Poets. Asterisk Letters, stating particulars and lowest price, carriage free, to be sent to Mr. Bell, publisher of Notes and Queries, 186, Fleet Street. Mr. Bell. Notices to Correspondence. Replies Received. Newtonian System, Portrait of Earl of Northumberland, Salmonath, Thomas Falkenberg, Nelson Family, Poems in the Spectator, Pardons under the Great Seal, Cheshire Cat, Meaning of Royd, Dodo Query, Men of Kent and Kentish Men, Swearing on a Skull, S.T. Christopher, Deferred Executions, Frebert, Corrupted Names of Places, Cain D. Cain, Poem on the Burning of the Houses of Parliament, Meaning of Penkinall, Ralph Winterton, B. Park, Plague Stones, Lines on Woman, Ring Finger, Sneezing, Binnacle, Rhymes on Places, Martinique, Richard Baxter, Nash's Terrors of the Night, Anthony Babington, The Miller's Melody, Irish Titles of Honor, Epitaphs, Emaciated Monumental Effigies, Oasis, Sweet Woodruff, University Hoods, Exeter Controversy. Replies Received. W. B. Birmingham is thanked. Our columns are at present too crowded to allow of our availing ourselves of his kind offer. C. M. C. We do not believe that there is any published life of the King of the Belgians. T. C. Boston. Caxton's Golden Legend was printed in 1483, and certainly not reprinted in London in 1843. The latter date must be a misprint for the former. J. N. O. Who inquires respecting the oft-quoted line. Tempora mutantur. N. C. Is referred to our first volume, pages 234 and 419. B. A. Trin. Call. Dub. Near Sheffield, shall receive answers to his queries. Vox Altera. Will our correspondent specify the communications to which he refers? There is no charge for the insertion of queries. Vox Altera. Balialensis. The letter of our correspondent has been forwarded. Balialensis. Neat cases for holding the numbers of N and Q. Until the completion of each volume are now ready. Price ones. 60. And may be had by order of all booksellers and newsmen. Notes and queries. Is published at noon on Friday so that the country booksellers may receive copies in that night's parcels, and deliver them to their subscribers on the Saturday. Notes and Queries New American Publications On sale by Sampson Lowe, 169 Fleet Street I. The History of the United States of America By Richard Hildreth 5 Volumes Royal 8 VO It has condensed into consecutive narrative the substance of hundreds of volumes. Literary Gazette. 2. The Pictorial Field Book of the American Revolution, or Illustrations by Pen and Pencil of the History, Biography, Scenery, and Traditions. Volume 1, Royal 8 VO, with several hundred engravings. 3. The War with Mexico. By R. S. 
Ripley, Brevet Major in the U.S. Army. With maps, plans of battles, and C. 2 Volumes 8 VO. 4. Forest life and forest trees, comprising winter camp life among the loggers, and wild wood adventure. By John S. Springer. Post 8 VO. With woodcuts. V. Glimpses of Spain. Or, Notes of an Unfinished Tour. By S. T. Wallace. One volume post eight VO. Six. Sixteen months at the gold diggings. By Daniel B. Wood. One volume post eight VO. Seven. A system of ancient and medieval geography. By Charles Anton, Doctor of Laws. One volume eight VO. Eight. The shipmaster's assistant and commercial digest, containing information necessary for merchants, owners, and masters of ships. By Joseph Blunt. Counselor at Law. 8 VO, Law Calf. 9. Benjamin Franklin, an autobiography. With a narrative of his public life and services. By the Rev. Hastings Weld. With many beautiful illustrations. 8 VO, Western Life Assurance and Annuity Society. 3. Parliament Street, London. Founded A.D. 1842. Directors. H. Edgeworth Bicknell. ESQ William Cabell, ESQT, Summers Cox, June ESQ MPG, Henry Drew, ESQ William Evans, ESQ William Freeman, ESQ F, Fuller, ESQ J, Henry Goodhart, ESQT, Grissel, ESQ James Hunt, ESQ J, Arskett Lethbridge, ESQ E, Lucas, ESQ James Liz Seeger, ESQ J, Basley White, ESQ Joseph Carterwood, ESQ Trustees, W. Waitley ESQ QC L C Humphrey ESQ QC George Drew ESQ Consulting Counsel Sir W M P Wood M P Physician William Rich Basham M D Bankers Messrs Cox Bidulph and Company Charing Cross Valuable Privilege Policies affected in this office do not become void through temporary difficulty in paying a premium as permission is given upon application to suspend the payment at interest, according to the conditions detailed on the prospectus. Specimens of rates of premium for assuring 100 L, with a share in three-fourths of the profits. Age. S. D. Age. S. D. 17. 1. 14. 4. 32. 2. 10. 8. 22. 1. 18. 8. 37. 2. 18. 6. 27. 2. 4. 5. 42. 3. 8. 2. Arthur Scratchley, M.A. F.R.A.S. Actuary. Now ready, price 10S. 60. Second edition, with material additions, Industrial Investment and Emigration, being a treatise on benefit-building societies and on the general principles of land investment, exemplified in the cases of freehold land societies, building companies, and C, with a mathematical appendix on compound interest and life assurance. By Arthur Scratchley, M.A., Actuary to the Western Life Assurance Society, 3. Parliament Street, London. Very important collection of manuscripts and autograph letters. Six days sale. 
Puttick and Simpson, auctioneers of literary property, will sell by auction, at their great room, 191. Piccadilly, on Thursday, June 3rd, and five following days, Sunday accepted, a very important collection of historical manuscripts, arranged as follow, viz. On June 3rd, a most interesting collection of documents relating to French history from Louis XIV. To the present time, including many interesting autographs, on June 4th and 5th, an extensive and highly valuable collection of English charters and deeds from an early date, many having beautiful seals, relating to nearly every English county, 500 Anglo-Norman charters, and c. on June 7th, a collection of manuscripts relating chiefly to English biography and family history, curious navy papers, and many articles of interest connected with English and foreign history and literature, on June 8th. And ninth, a very important and interesting collection of autograph letters, including English royal autographs of great rarity, letters of authors, artists, and other celebrities, the whole in the finest preservation. Catalogues of each division may be had separately, or the whole will be sent on receipt of six postage stamps. Sixth portion of the extensive and valuable library of Thomas Jolly, ESQFSA. Puttick and Simpson, auctioneers of literary property, will sell by auction, at their great room, 191. Piccadilly, on Tuesday, June 15th, and four following days, the sixth portion of the extensive, singularly curious, and valuable library of Thomas Jolly, ESQ, FSA, comprising the second division of works illustrative of the history, language, and literature of England, Ireland, and America, scarce voyages and travels, rare English poetical and dramatic literature, early English theology, controversial tracts, and c. Catalogues may be had, or will be sent on receipt of six postage stamps. Legal Iambics This day is published in 8VO, price 1S, stitch. Legal Iambics in prose, suggested by the present Chancery Crisis. By a Chancery Barrister. Stevens and Norton, Law Booksellers and Publishers, 26. Belliard Lincoln's Inn. The Gentleman's Magazine for June contains the following articles. 1. Gustavus Vesa. 2. English Grammar. 3. Christian Iconography, The Dove. 4. Macaronic Poetry. 5. Wanderings of an Antiquary by Thomas Wright, F.S.A., The Roman Town of Limney, with Engravings. 6. Monetary Affairs after the Revolution of 1688. 7. Status of the Jews. 8. Country Book Clubs. 9. Architectural Nomenclature, by Mr. Edmund Sharp. 10. Indulgence Cups at York and Lynn, with Correspondence of Sylvanus Urban, on various subjects, notes of the month. Reviews of new publications, historical chronicle, and obituary, including memoirs of the Grand Duke of Baden, Lord Dinever, Lord Wenlock, Wright Hahn, Sir Henry Russell, Sir W.M. Keir Grant Major Jen. Reed M.P., John George Children, ESQ, Thomas Haviland Burke, ESQ, John Dalrymple, ESQ, Rev. Philip Dodd, N.C., N.C., Price 2S, 60. Obituary. Nichols and Son, Parliament Street. Morning. Court, Family, and Complimentary. The proprietor of the London General Morning Warehouse begs respectfully to remind families whose bereavements compel them to adopt morning attire that every article of the very best description, 
requisite for a complete outfit of mourning, may be had at this establishment at a moment's notice. The London General Mourning Warehouse. Estimates for servants' mourning, affording a great saving to families, are furnished, whilst the habitual attendance of experienced assistants, including dressmakers and milliners, enables them to suggest or supply every necessary for the occasion, and suited to any grade or condition of the community. Widows and family mourning is always kept made up, and a note, descriptive of the mourning required, will ensure its being sent forthwith either in town or into the country, and on the most reasonable terms. Estimates for Servants' Mourning Widows and Family Mourning W. C. J. 247-249 Regent Street To Coin Collectors and C. Dot, a catalogue of coins and medals, among which are included early English and Scotch silver coins, Saxon pennies, choice bronze medals, Roman denarii, and C. With prices affixed, will be sent gratis and post-free to any gentleman who forwards his address to Fred. Lincoln, son of W. S. Lincoln, Cheltenham House, Westminster Road, London. Just published. A new edition, corrected and improved, in one volume, Royal Aid V.O. Pages 1690, price 21s. Cloth. A copious and critical. Latin English lexicon. Founded on the larger German Latin lexicon. Of Dr. William Freund. With additions and corrections. From the Lexicons of Gessner, Facciolati, Scheller, George, and C. By E. A. Andrews, Doctor of Laws, and C. In reviewing this lexicon, the Athenaeum says, In conclusion, we are glad to have an opportunity of introducing so excellent a work to the notice of our classical and philological readers. It has all that true German Grundlichkeit about it which is so highly appreciated by English scholars. Rarely, if ever, has so vast an amount of philological information been comprised in a single volume of this size. The knowledge which it conveys of the earlier and later Latin is not to be gathered from ordinary Latin dictionaries. With regard to the manner in which it is got up, we can speak most favorably. Every page bears the impress of industry and care. The type is clear, neat, and judiciously varied. The Literary Gazette says, Literary Gazette. We have examined this book with considerable attention, and have no hesitation in saying it is the best dictionary of the Latin language that has appeared. The spectator says, Spectator, in elaborate fullness and completeness, while everything is quite clear, are the characteristics of this work, rendering it the best Latin dictionary for the scholar or advanced student. The examiner says, Examiner, Dr. Andrews has a claim to our gratitude for his translation not simply on the ground of his faithful retention of the excellencies of Dr. Freund, but also for much correction and some additions. In the 1663 large 8 VO, pages which form the volume before us, all the most valuable arrangements of detail have been compressed. It remains for us only to add that we never saw such a book published at such a price. Asterisk. In consequence of a strict adherence to this rule, the present work is distinguished from every manual Latin-English lexicon heretofore published, not only by the number of authorities cited, but by its full reference in every case, both to the name of the classical author and to the particular treatise, book, section, or line of his writings, in which the passage referred to is to be found. London, 
Sampson Low, 169. Fleet Street. Oxford, J. H. Parker. Cambridge, Macmillan & Co. Photography. J. B. Hawken & Company, Operative Chemists, 289. Strand, manufacture all the pure chemicals used in this art. Also apparatus for the glass, paper, and daguerreotype processes. Achromatic lens and camera from 35S. Instruction in the art. Agents for. Archer's iodized collodion and improved camera. Which obviates the necessity for a dark room. Electrotyping in all its branches. Now ready, the third edition, price 1S, cloth or 1S, 4D, by post. A word to the wise, or hints on the current improprieties of expression in writing and speaking. By Perry Gwynn. All who wish to mind their P's and Q's should consult this little volume. Gentleman's Magazine. May be advantageously consulted by even the well-educated. Athenaeum. Grant and Griffith, corner of S.T. Paul's Churchyard. Catalogue de Dix Milleridges, Ancients et Moderns, 1477-1851. Offerts AUX Bibliophiles AUX Preindex, Pare, Asher and Company, Berlin. Copies of this catalog, comprising an extraordinary assemblage of books in theology, history, geography, languages, and C, and C, are to be had of Mr. D. Nut 270. Strand, London, free by post for six stamps. Now ready in 12 MO. Price 5S. A new edition of the Poetry of the Anti-Jacobin, comprising the celebrated political and satirical poems, parodies, and Judespri of the Right Han, G. Canning, W. Gifford the Right Han, J. H. Frere, G. Ellis, Yeskew, Marquis Wellesley and other eminent literary and political characters. Illustrated with notes. The difficulty of procuring copies of this celebrated work, which has never been surpassed for wit, humor, and cutting satire together with the numerous applications continually made to the publisher for it, has induced him to issue a new and revised edition, with explanatory notes. G. Willis, Great Piazza, Covent Garden. Book plates. Heraldic queries answered, family arms found, and every information afforded. Drawing of arms 2S, 60, painting ditto 5S, book plate crest 5S, arms, and C, from 20S, Crest on card plate, and 100 cards 8S. Queries answered for 1S. Saxon, medieval, and modern style book plates. The best authorities and MS. Books of 35 years practice consulted. Heraldic stamps for linen or books, with reverse ciphers and crests. Apply if by letter, enclosing stamps or post office order, to James Friswell, son-in-law to J. Rumley, publisher of The Crest Book. Heraldic Illustrations Heraldic Engraver, 12 Brook Street, Holborn Bond Standard Library for June Bond Standard Library for June Butler's Analogy of Religion and Sermons with Analytical Introductions and Notes by a member of the University of Oxford Portrait Post 8 VO, 3S, 60 Henry G, Bone, 4, 5, and 6 York Street, Covent Garden Bond's Classical Library for June. Bond's Classical Library for June. The Comedies of Plautus, literally translated into English prose, with copious notes, by H. T. Riley, B.A. Post 8 VO, 
complete in two volumes, Volume 1, 5S. Henry G., Bone, 4, 5, and 6. York Street, Covent Garden. Bond Scientific Library for June. Bond Scientific Library for June. Humboldt's Personal Narrative of His Travels in America. Volume 2. Postate Veal. To be completed in three volumes, 5S. Henry G., Bone, 4, 5, and 6. York Street, Covent Garden. Bond's Illustrated Library for June. Bond's Illustrated Library for June. Rome in the 19th Century. Fifth Edition, revised by the author, with a copious index, complete in two volumes, illustrated by 34 fine steel engravings. Volume 2. Price 5S. Henry G., Bone, 4, 5, and 6. York Street, Covent Garden. Books recently printed at the University Press, Oxford. Eusebii Pamphili Evangelici Demonstrationis Libri Decim Conversion Latina Donati Veronensis. Recent Sir Thomas Gaysford, Stpedes Christi Decanus. Two Volumes 8 Veal, Price 1L, 1S, in Boards. Eusebii Pamphili Contra Hieroclem et Marcellum Libri. Edited Thomas Gaysford, Stpedes Christi Decanus. 8 Veal, Price 10S, 60, in Boards. Scolia in Sophocles Tragedias Septem ex Codicibus Octa et Mendata. Volumen 2. Edited G. Dindorpheus. 8 Vio. Price 8S. 60. In Boards. Enchiridion Theologicum Antiromenum. Tracks on the points at issue between the churches of England and Rome. Bishop Taylor's Dissuasive from Popery, in two parts. And his treatise on the real presence and spiritual, and C. A new edition. 8 Vio, Price 8S, in Boards. Bishop Burnett's History of the Reign of King James II. Notes by the Earl of Dartmouth, Speaker Onslow, and Dean Swift. Additional observations now enlarged. 8 Vio, Price 9S, 60, in Boards. Sold by John Henry Parker, Oxford, and 377. Strand, London, and E. Gardner, 7. Paternoster Row, London. Books on sale by John Russell Smith, 36, Soho Square, London. Biographia Britannica Literaria, or Biography of Literary Characters of Great Britain and Ireland, arranged in chronological order. By Thomas Wright, M.A. F.S.A., member of the Institute of France. Two thick volumes, eight vio, cloth. Volume 1, Anglo-Saxon Period. Volume 2. Anglo-Norman period. 6S, each, published at 12S, each. Published under the superintendence of the Royal Society of Literature. Guide to Archaeology. An archaeological index to remains of antiquity of the Celtic, Romano-British, and Anglo-Saxon periods. By John Young Ackerman, fellow and secretary to the Society of Antiquaries. 1 Volume 8 VO, illustrated with numerous engravings, comprising upwards of 500 objects, cloth, 15s. One of the first wants of an incipient antiquary is the facility of comparison, and here it is furnished him at one glance. The plates, indeed, form the most valuable part of the book, both by their number and the judicious selection of types and examples which they contain. It is a book which we can, on this account, safely and warmly recommend to all who are interested in the antiquities of their native land. 
Literary Gazette. A book of such utility, so concise, so clear, so well condensed from such varied and voluminous sources, cannot fail to be generally acceptable. Art Union. Coins. An Introduction to the Study of Ancient and Modern Coins. By J. Y. Ackerman. FCP8VO. With numerous wood engravings, from the original coins 6S. 60. Coins of the Romans relating to Britain, described and illustrated. By J. Y. Ackerman, FSA 2nd edition, 8VO, greatly enlarged with plates and woodcut, 10S. 60. Cloth. Writes thus. Essays on the Literature, Popular Superstitions, and History of England in the Middle Ages. Two Volumes Post 8VO. Cloth 16S. Writes thus. St. Patrick's Purgatory, an essay on the legends of purgatory, hell, and paradise, current during the Middle Ages. Post 8VO, Cloth 6S. Lowers M. A. Essays on English Surnames. Two Volumes Post 8VO, 3rd Edition, Greatly Enlarged. Cloth 12S. Lowers Curiosities of Heraldry, with illustrations from Old English Writers 8VO, Numerous Engravings. Cloth 14S. Herald's Visitations. An index to all the pedigrees and arms in the heraldic visitations and other genealogical mises in the British Museum. By G. Sims of the Manuscript Department. 8VO. Closely printed in double columns. Cloth 15S. Asterisk an indispensable book to those engaged in genealogical or topographical pursuits affording a ready clue to the pedigrees and arms of above 30,000 of the gentry of England, their residences, and c. distinguishing the different families of the same name, in every county, as recorded by the heralds in their visitations, with indexes to other genealogical misses in the British Museum. It has been the work of immense labor. No public library ought to be without it. The Nursery Rhymes of England, collected chiefly from oral tradition. Edited by J. O. Hallowell. Fourth edition 12MO, with 38 designs by W. B. Scott. 4S. 60. Cloth. Popular Rhymes and Nursery Tales, with Historical Elucidations, a sequel to The Nursery Rhymes of England. Edited by J. O. Hallowell. Royal 18MO. 4S. 60. Holbein's Dance of Death with an historical and literary introduction by an antiquary. Square Post 8VO, with 51 engravings, being the most accurate copies ever executed of these gems of art, and a frontispiece of an ancient bedstead at Aix-la-Chapelle, with a dance of death carved on it, engraved by Fairholt, cloth, 9S. The designs are executed with a spirit and fidelity quite extraordinary. They are indeed most truthful. Athenaeum a delectus in Anglo-Saxon, intended as a first-class book in the language. By the Rev. W. Barnes, of St. John's College, Cambridge, author of the poems and glossary in the Dorset dialect. 12MO, Cloth 2S, 60. To those who wish to possess a critical knowledge of their own native English, some acquaintance with Anglo-Saxon is indispensable and we have never seen an introduction better calculated than the present to supply the wants of a beginner in a short space of time. The declensions and conjugations are well stated, and illustrated by references to the Greek, Latin, French, and other languages. A philosophical spirit pervades every part. 
The Delectus consists of short pieces on various subjects, with extracts from Anglo-Saxon history and the Saxon Chronicle. There is a good glossary at the end. Athenaeum, October 20, 1849 Guide to the Anglo-Saxon Tongue, with lessons in verse and prose, for the use of learners. By E. J. Vernon B.A. Oxon 12 M.O. Cloth 5S. 60. Asterisk this will be found useful as a second-class book, or to those well-versed in other languages. Bosworth's Rev. Doctor, Compendious Anglo-Saxon and English Dictionary. 8 V.O. Closely printed in treble columns, cloth 12S. This is not a mere abridgment of the large dictionary, but almost an entirely new work. In this compendious one will be found, at a very moderate price, all that is most practical and valuable in the former expensive edition, with a great accession of new words and matter. Author's Preface Analecta Anglo-Saxonica Selections in prose and verse from Anglo-Saxon literature, with an introductory ethnological essay, and notes, critical and explanatory. By Louis F. Klipstein, of the University of Gießen, two thick volumes post-8 VO, cloth 12S, original price 18S. Facts and speculations on the origin and history of playing cards. By W. A. Chaddle, author of Jackson's History of Wood Engraving. In one handsome volume 8 VO, illustrated with many engravings, both plain and colored cloth 1L, 1S. It is exceedingly amusing. Atlas. Curious, entertaining, and really learned book. Rambler. Indeed the entire production deserves our warmest approbation. Literary Gazette. A perfect fund of antiquarian research, and most interesting even to persons who never play at cards. Tate's Mag. A dictionary of archaic and provincial words, obsolete phrases, proverbs, and ancient customs from the reign of Edward I. By James Orchard Hallowell, FRS, FSA, and C. Two volumes, eight VO, containing upwards of 1,000 pages closely printed in double columns, cloth 1L, 1S. It contains about 50,000 words, embodying all the known scattered glossaries of the English language, forming a complete key to the reading of the works of our old poets, dramatists, theologians, and other authors, whose works abound with allusions of which explanations are not to be found in ordinary dictionaries and books of reference. Most of the principal archaisms are illustrated by examples selected from early unedited mises and rare books, and by far the greater portion will be found to be original authorities. A little book of songs and ballads, gathered from ancient music books, M.S., and printed. By E. F. Rimbault, Doctor of Laws, N.C., Post 8 V.O., pages 240. Half-bound in Morocco, 6S. Antique ballads sung to crowds of old. Now cheaply bought for thrice their weight in gold. Bibliotheca Madrigaliana, a bibliographical account of the music and poetical works published in England in the 16th and 17th centuries, under the titles of Madrigals, Ballets, Airs, Canzonets, and C. By Dr. Rimbault. 8VO Cloth 5S. Consuetudines Cansi. A History of Gavelkind, and Other Remarkable Customs in the County of Kent, by Charles Sandys, E.S.Q., F.S.A., Cantianus, illustrated with F.A.C. similes, a very handsome volume, 8 V.O., Cloth, 15 S. Bruce's Rev. J. C., 
Historical and Topographical Account of the Roman Wall from the Tyne to the Solway. Thick 8 VO, 35 plates and 194 woodcuts, half Morocco, 1L, 1S. Printed by Thomas Clark Shaw, of number 8. New Street Square, at number 5. New Street Square, in the parish of S.T. Bride, in the city of London, and published by George Bell, of number 186. Fleet Street, in the parish of S.T. Dunstan in the West, in the city of London, publisher, at number 186. Fleet Street aforesaid. Dot, Saturday, May 29, 1852. Thomas Clark Shaw. George Bell.